Hello and welcome to the Andyplex. This is episode nine. Dr. Grant, my dear Dr. Grant, welcome to Jurassic Park, the podcast. This is episode nine already. Oh my goodness. It's July 3rd, 2020. What a wacky year. With me today, super special guest, talented man, dear friend of mine. I'm lucky to call him friend and collaborator, Richard Galley. I always call you Rick, if that's okay. Rick, can I call you Rick today? You certainly can. Yes. Thanks for having me. Dude, thank you for uh, virtually beaming into my living room here on this uh, wonderful July day. As you know, we're still in quarantine and uh, things were starting to open back up, but now they're not anymore. Yeah. Closing back. So, um, to talk about something that was famously, uh, that famously opened way too soon, Jurassic Park. Uh, one of my favorite movies. I know it's one of your favorite movies. This was your pick. And I am super happy to have this movie on my show and to talk about it in, uh, at length and... It's gonna be uh, it's gonna be a fun hang with you, um, just because a I miss you and it's been so long since we've physically been in the same room, Rick. But uh, also just because this is one of our favorite movies and we get to nerd out and geek out about this one, and it's obviously inspired you and it's inspired me. It's inspired almost a whole generation or more of people, and it's still inspiring people. Such a powerful thing, this movie. And uh, so yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, was we were just talking about how we were listening to the theme song this morning and getting all pumped up, and it still delivers goosebumps. I think I still have the goosebumps to prove it here. But yeah, so yeah, welcome, Rick. It's good to see you, brother. Yeah, great to be here. And you know, um, thanks to technology, we can still be together in this age, um, unlike. I mean, well, so we are essentially using technology correctly and responsibly. Um, we, uh, thankfully, the um, the bioengineers at Zoom knew their technology and they advanced it without getting too far ahead of themselves. <laughs> so far as so far as we know, so far, you never know. This yeah, this conversation may go very badly. <laughs> it may, but. I highly doubt that, just because you and I have such a rich history of conversing over the years, and our origin stories are very much... And I trust my computer. Yes. I was going to say, what if Zoom offered, like, a cloning feature where it could clone your friend and bring you into the the room? You want to physically be with your friend? Well, here we go. We're going to clone him. But is it really... (laughs) Is it really your friend, or is it something else? Altogether. What if he has my memories? (laughs) Oh my goodness, did you just quote Clonoff? Yep. Oh my goodness, thank you so much, Rick. Quoting uh, a no-brow movie we just released, uh, Clonoff. Speaking of clones, oh yeah, I never thought of it. As the, as the dinosaur movie, Jurassic Park, is a clone movie at the same time. Yeah. And you yeah. Kinda, it's easy to forget that fact. But Anyway, I got to play myself twice. Uh, which one's the clone? You'll have to find out. Watch Clonoff on no-brow, channel no-brow on YouTube. And uh, yeah, man. Uh, that's awesome. Well, Rick, you and I have known each other for so long now. I was thinking about it today. How long exactly? And I think it's somewhere to the tune of 17 years. Whoa. We both went to University of Miami College, where we both embarked on our uh, film and motion picture education. 
and uh, we've been fast friends ever since. We were in a an acting class, actually. It was like an elective acting class with Bob Ankrum. Bob Ankrum. Yeah, and uh, I'll never forget meeting you. I believe Bob Ankrum was actually asking kind of like a film nerd question, and we broke up into groups, and we had to converse about our favorite directors. And we had to go around the room and say who our favorite directors were, film directors, and why and why. And I'll never forget, you, this is before I met you, you were called on, I'm going to go around the room, and you said, Robert Zemeckis. I'm a huge Bob Zemeckis fan. I've been a huge Bob Zemeckis fan my whole life, uh, since definitely that point, uh, but well before. And, you know, Steven Spielberg conjures up so many images when you hear like can you look up director film director in the dictionary steven spielberg definitely pops up and we'll be talking about uh, mr steve today obviously with, with jp but uh not many people at the time knew like bob's robert zemeckis's name of course i'm calling him bob i'm on first name basis with him because we're tight yeah, of, course. of course and there he is right behind you hey bob what's up he just want to say hi he's asking when we're going to do back to the future um i said you gotta wait hey, how are you? a couple more hey how are you <laughs> the veto juice uh, hey, oh yeah, I love that part. Um, but anyway, I was like, I like this guy, uh, this dude, Rick. And then we uh, we got to pair up, and I was like, I love Robert Zemeckis. Oh, my God, he's great. And then I think pretty much that was already game over. Uh, we were already, like, friends, and we started making movies together. Uh, you were involved in uh, some programs at University of Miami that I tapped into, um, one called Off the Wire you were one of the main producers of. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're yep. definitely sketch a sketch comedy show. Yeah, sketch comedy show. Thank you. Um, and yeah, we were bumping to each other in classes and not in classes. And then we started hanging out. And then we did. Um, I never forget. We did one flew over the cuckoo's nest together. Um, that was, I believe, your senior year. I want to say it was. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Two thousand. Uh, probably two thousand five. I graduated in May. And okay. I think we. I think it was the spring play. Uh, yeah, before I graduated. Yeah, I played Scanlan, one of the one of the crazy guys, and then uh, you played the doctor. I was Doctor Speevy. Doctor Speevy, oh, there's the voice. Oh my goodness, you have to do the whole show in Doctor Speevy now. I, I can, I, I certainly can. <laughs> oh my goodness, you had that at the ready. Uh, that's great, Doctor Speevy. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, I've been uh, a buddy of yours and. Uh, a fan of yours for a very long time. You're a very talented guy. You are a cinematographer. You are a writer. You're a director. You're a producer. You actually work a lot with John K.D. Graham, who was my last guest on the uh, Last Unicorn episode. The Last Unicorn. And thank you for doing this show today, because I know you guys are literally almost out the door with your new feature. And you guys are heading to Georgia on Sunday, correct? Sunday, yep. So we have the 4th, and then we skedaddle. Wow. Yeah, we were, we were going to hang out tomorrow at the 4th party, which I wasn't really sure if it was going to happen anyway, and then we formally just got the word that it's canceled. Alexandra Boylan was hosting a party. She has a pool, but yeah, these times are, are strange. So, But anyway, I'll be doing Jackbox Party Pack all day long tomorrow if you want to join in on Zoom as well. Nice. Uh, we can be... Practicing social distancing, but not spiritual distancing, mm. which is too much to bear. <laughs> on uh, And you are a huge 4th of July fan, and you're a big fireworks pyromaniac like myself. And we were roommates for a while in New Mexico, and for years and years, you and I 
not to toot our own horns, but you and I are awesome. We did some bad things. <laughs> <laughs> we did some bad things. And uh, I remember one year, man, we, we would go to this. We were living in Albuquerque, New Mexico at the time. We were roommates for years with uh, Rich King, who's also a friend of the show. He hasn't been on the show yet, but he will be. He was on Sons of Carpenter, another amazing guy, film producer and extraordinaire. But anyway, uh, we would all kind of enable each other's creative endeavors and party endeavors. We had this big backyard, so we're going to throw parties. And a couple Fourth of Julys, we really just, uh, we said we always wanted to do it hard and do it right. And I remember I was like, I think I'm going to give myself a $200 budget on fireworks. And then I drove to, um, it was a tent in Pawaukee where you would drive. And it was like a Native American land where you could actually buy like the serious fireworks, like the mortars and like. It the ones I don't want you shooting off really in city limits, and I was like two hundred dollars, Andy. I go in there and it was like a whirlwind. I was just like, it's like dance of the sugar plum fairies, which I'm butchering horribly. But and then I remember getting up to the cash register with the clerk was like, oh, that'll be five hundred dollars, and I was just like, should I put some stuff back? Nah, screw it, whatever. Yep. And then it was I remember all buy one get one free. Yeah, it was all buy one get one free. So it was really like a thousand dollars of the fireworks. And then I remember driving home, and I was just kind of like feeling a little guilty, a little buyer's remorse that I spent three hundred dollars over my budget. Um, and uh, I called you, and I was like, Rick, I, I bought a lot of fireworks, <laughs> and then you were like, I did too. <laughs> and then you were like, I spent five hundred dollars, <laughs> and I was like, I spent five hundred dollars. <laughs> So that year, I remember we put all the fireworks in my room, and I called it the armory. Yep. And we actually had to stop people from, like, sneaking. Remember people were, like, trying to go around our backs and, like, get our fireworks that we paid for, even though they get to see them all? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Oh, my goodness. Clever girl. There is a dinosaur walking around in the background of your living room, Rick. Um, I'm going to try to not move. Was that Marty? Can't your see dog? it don't move. Don't move. This is Marty. Oh my god, he's creeping around. Oh god, Marty is not the dinosaur. Marty, don't move! Don't move! You can't see him as we don't move! Oh my goodness. I wish this was a visual podcast so we could actually see what was going on, but let me describe. There is a T-Rex behind you, Rick, behind your right shoulder. It's creeping up. Its head's coming down. It's a very large agape mouth. It's red with white teeth. And I know it's Lauren. Hey, Lauren! I got my earpods in so she can't hear you. Andy says hello. Oh, yes, right. I say hello, Relay, yes. Uh, your lovely and talented wife, Lauren, actress. We actually got to get her on the show eventually, too, because she's super talented and and, okay. and badass. And uh, got to have her on my show. So, <laughs> um, And I will insist that she wears the Tyrannosaurus Rex outfit when she does the show, even if it's not a dinosaur <laughs> movie that we decide on. <laughs> <laughs> That's Thanks, awesome. beautiful. Oh my god, that made my day. That's incredible. Wow. How did you get that dinosaur costume and where do I get one? <laughs> it's it's left over from the wedding from when we got married. Oh yeah. Uh, and you can find them even on like Amazon or eBay. They're like 20 bucks. Oh god. They're amazing. And right now in the time of COVID, it's absolutely 100% well, not 100% because it has a fan that blows everything from the outside in. So not really, but you would assume it's safe. Yeah. Like a bio suit. Well, something tells me when you're dressed as a T-Rex, people aren't going to be uh, super close to you anyway. They'll keep their distance built in. Oh, one would hope, unless, you know, you're 
you're that one guy from Jurassic Park 2, The Lost World, who tries to hunt them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right, Jurassic Park 2, which we'll, we will not talk about much today. Um, no, we won't. Although it's it's flawed but fun. It's, yep. got, some, it's got some cool stuff. But um, Jurassic Park, man. So excited to talk about this movie. What a movie. I'll never forget getting driven to see it in 93. And being so excited. And it had already been like a smash hit. I didn't see it right away. And being in the car with my mom and and dad and brother. And I remember we got halfway to the theater. And all of a sudden I was like, I can't. I can't do it. I'm too scared. I'm nine. I can't do this. And uh, But I pulled it together. But I remember I almost said... I can't, and I almost committed to it, but I was like, I gotta see this movie, everyone's talking <laughs> about this movie, I remember being at a summer camp, and people talking about this movie, and um, yeah, so it's already been 27 summers, which is crazy, it's already been seven summers since, well it was in, it was in April, I want to say, of uh, 2013, which would have been the 20th, they did it in 3D, I got to see it at the Arclight uh, in 3D, and uh, so it was really a treat to see it again in the theater, but that's already been seven years, so we're creeping up on 30, but this movie just has such a power to it. It doesn't really age. The effects hold up. Anyway, we'll get all of that soon. I want to talk more about your journey as a filmmaker. I gotten to witness a lot of it over the years. Uh, I'm sure there's a, a few stories that I haven't heard, but you are a super talented director of photography. You've shot how many features now? This is your sixth oh, or seventh? This, this, what we're leaving for, I do believe, is seven, yeah. Wow. Seven features. And uh, you've written a ton of stuff. You are a producer. You're, anyway, you're awesome, Rick. I'm so glad you uh, want to do the show. <laughs> I'm, you're a dear friend of mine, and uh, I miss you so much. Just seeing your living room right now is uh, making me miss you even more. But one day, we'll hang out in person. But as for now, as you said... Thanks to the miracle of Zoom technology, mm -hmm. we're hanging out. Soon the fences will go down, and we will be allowed to. We will be allowed to. Uh... Some people out there are right now testing the fences, but they never test the same place <laughs> twice. But we are the responsible. They remember. <laughs> One of my favorite lines. That's hilarious. They are testing the fences, and um, this will be my second Spielberg movie now. I did Jaws with Nick Chandler, Episode Five. And that was really the that's still really the hot button issue is opening the economy back up, opening the even the literal the literal beaches back up too, but also just the economy opening back up in the face of a public health threat. And um, as we go into the Fourth of July weekend, it's even more on the money because, as we were saying just earlier, uh, there I know in LA they're like no fireworks displays, they don't want to have people gather, the beaches are not open, so. We all live in the movie Jaws right now, which is kind of crazy, but there are definitely echoes and uh, kinships with Jurassic Park, which we'll go into as well. And uh, you also discovered, and you showed me this yesterday on our phone call, that Dennis Nedry has Jaws on in the, uh, in the lab there. Yep. Yep. It's very, very subtle, but on his, uh, I think he has two or three screens, but whichever screen is all the way to the left. Uh, my good friend Charlie Frone actually pointed this out to me a long time ago. He's got this very small window open up, and it is playing Jaws. Not not just like 
any random scene, but like very specific moments where like the shark pops out of the water when you like first get to see it, at least its face yeah. uh, clear out of the water for the first time, right before the iconic line, you know, we're going to need a bigger boat. Um, and I think the second time they show it is is like as the as the shark Bruce is jumping out of the water before landing on the boat before um, eating Robert Shaw. I hope I didn't spoil that movie for anybody. Wow. Well, they've had 45 years to uh, watch Jaws. That's true. <laughs> and uh, if they're being spoiled right now, then you got to go watch Jaws, people. Uh, and then Jurassic Park as well. But, uh, yeah, I'm really proud of our episode uh, five with Nick because um, I kind of strong-armed Nick a little bit. And bless his heart, he, he went along with it. I was like, oh, my God, we're in Jaws right now. And really what it was was Rich King, our old roomie and friend and collaborator, sent me an email saying that Lee Fierro, the mother of the Kittner boy, yes. the Kittner boy, had, had died, and she lived to be 91, which is it's a good long life, but it's a good she long life. died of coronavirus. And so coronavirus and Jaws were just in my brain at the same time. Thank you, Rich, for sending me that email. And that, that really like started the whole thing off. Um, but yeah, Jaws is obviously another monster movie, but it's not a monster movie because Spielberg does monster movies so well that they go into another genre. I wouldn't even call them a monster movie because mm-hmm. it's, they, they touch on just spheres crossing that shouldn't really be crossing, crossing the streams if you were, um, <laughs> <laughs> so just getting to see these things juxtaposed against each other, like humans interacting with sharks, humans interacting with dinosaurs, that kind of thing. Um, but yes, do you remember seeing this movie in the theater for the first time? I do. I do. It, uh, it's the, those, those life changing moments. You, yeah. uh, they tend to, they tend to stick with you. Um, I honestly don't remember who I saw it with. Uh, there's a part of me that, that thinks I saw it with my family. Other other times I think I saw it with, with friends, but I'm not quite sure because in the end it felt like I was just alone in that theater, just all by myself. It was just the movie and me. And and yeah, it was just life-changing. What's, what's crazy is I didn't see it again uh, that, that summer, it's, it wasn't until they re-released it again in either the winter or the fall of that year that I, that I saw it finally for the second time in theaters. Um, I had no idea why I didn't see it more than once. I don't know. Maybe it was just a great year for, for movies, but, and yet it's still in my mind is, you know, top five in my book. So Yeah. 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 When I think about it, it's kind of odd, but I mean, it it might also be one of those things where, you don't need to see it for for you to carry it around with you no matter what um who knows yeah no for sure i only saw it once in its opening theatrical run as well obviously i remember getting the uh, the vhs for christmas or something like that that following cycle and then over and over and over and that's when it started the over and over and over but honestly the movie was seared into my brain and i'll never forget i remember seeing it for the first time and I literally thought the movie was ending when they were going to go to sleep on the tree with the brontosauruses, where it's Alan, Tim, and Lex. Really? And I was like, wow, what a movie. And I, I really <laughs> thought it was going to end, right? And I would have been like, that was the best movie I've ever seen in my life. Because after that T-Rex part and that whole escape, uh, and we still had the raptor showdown, we still had the end showdown, um, still had a little bit of movie to go, but I remember just being like, that was already the best thing I've ever seen. 
you know mm. i was so blown away by it and uh do you think it had a big big influence on you in terms of pursuing a career in show business filmmaking yep absolutely um yeah my my interest in in filmmaking started even outside of filmmaking uh as a kid i was really into magic just card tricks i was i was obviously the most popular kid in school being the kid that brings in a deck of cards and and says hey you wanna you wanna see a trick come over in this corner and i'll show you something um <laughs> and you use that exact voice when you when you did it ex- exactly exactly that's 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 the uh the 10 year old rick galley right there um <laughs> And uh, but but what what really fascinated me about magic uh, was obviously the illusion of it, not not being like the keeper of the secrets, um, but but just seeing that that look in someone's eyes when you produce something that they physically just saw and yet don't know how to explain it in the tangible aspects of of this world's rules, um, and. That's that's what I became addicted to, and, and it quickly uh, changed into um, movie magic, into camera tricks, and those kinds of illusions. And immediately, I was I was no longer the person doing the illusions. I was the one saying, "How'd you do that? Oh man, what? How? What? How is that possible?" So I started learning about uh, SFX. I started learning about um, you know models and forced perspective. Um, and, and camera tricks, even the simple thing that they did in like the, the, uh, the Batman show where they put the camera on its side and the Batman and Robin were scaling. Oh yeah. They were just walking on the floor. Classic. Um, Classic. Which of course really got me into full circle pyrotechnics. Uh, you know, how, how can something like, uh, the, the, um, the, the Statue of Liberty fall apart, or how can the Empire State Building in Independence Day explode um, as realistic as I saw it and destroy New York, um, even though I didn't read about that happening on the news, and I can see right now that the Empire State Building is still there. What's going on? Um, yeah. And and these were all just practical tricks of the trade. Um, most movies I would see, even like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, not the greatest Spielberg movie, but like the um, the the mine car chase was done a lot with uh, stop motion animation, and I had no idea until I was told at another time. It was just it was it was a trick that happened. You didn't even know it was a trick ahead of time. That yeah. is what hooked me because in front of a magician, in front of a magician, you know there's going to be a trick. He says, "I have a trick for you." He or she says, "I have a trick for you," and. Here's deck of cards, and this is going to happen. And you're constantly on your guard. You're like, all right, I'm going to see the, the uh, right the sleight of hand. I'm going to I'm going to figure out how they did this. And usually the trick is done very well where you can't figure it out. But in movies, it was happening behind my back, and I didn't even know it. And that was just the hook. Um, and then of course, all of a sudden, I watch a movie like Jurassic Park, which. I knew it was an illusion. I knew that these people actually didn't create dinosaurs. And yet yeah, I were. still believe that they did. Yeah. Yeah. I still believe that they did because I know. It we is we were we were yeah, exactly. Even even the sounds. No one had ever heard what a, a T-Rex roar sounds like before and yet as soon as it 
belched out, I said, that is exactly what a T-Rex sounds like. Is It's definitely not what I expected, but even because of that, that must mean it might be true. I don't know. And it just completely threw my world, even in the realm of magic, just on its head. I had, yeah. I had seen things like, um, like moving water before, like the T one thousand or the uh, the tentacle in the abyss. Right. But I had never, ever seen something living and breathing with skin, with muscles. Uh, something that's, yeah, just right there, eyes dilating. Just something that's right there, close enough for you to just reach out in the screen and touch if you wanted. Absolutely. It's just fantastic. That's super well said. And there, this movie has such a power to it. And it is magic. It really is movie magic at its core. And it uh, it still holds up. And they know when to do it, when to do the computer stuff, when to do the practical. And really, it's just a completely beautiful blending therein. Yeah. Uh, the Stan Winston puppet stuff um, and the, the ILM stuff. And knowing how to do it in a way that's not just too in your face. But like you said, put it right there, you know. Like, it is Jurassic Park. You're in the car. It's kind of a ride. Like, you really are (laughs) going through this. And uh, that's so cool, man. Um, What a cool story with the magician stuff, too. Have you been to Magic Castle in L.A., by the way? I finally went. Not not yet. Uh, Lauren actually got that for me, either for an anniversary or a birthday, a couple years ago. And we just haven't gotten around to it. Yeah. Yeah, really want to. Yeah, I went right before the, the COVID crisis hit. And uh, doubt it's even open now, but you have to get basically get an invite or, or get or get a like a ticket through mm-hmm. something. But yeah, it's really cool. You'll love it. You'll when you eventually get there, and it really feels like this old castle. And uh, you know, there's like a secret passageway to get in from like the lobby when you come in, and you know, they greet you at the desk, and then this bookshelf like slides over, and uh, <laughs> you'll 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 love it, man. Whenever whenever you get to awesome. make it there, yeah, it's such a cool such a cool spot and yeah i'm like i have no idea how these guys do any of these tricks and you know it's a trick but i think that's really well analogied with jurassic park because you know they're not real but in your mind and i think when you said it was just you in the movie in the theater i love that because you are experiencing something right and it's not just special effects the movie has got it it's got it all it's got great characters it's got obviously the music it's just so the whole package is just this powerful, powerful magic to it. And yeah, I definitely I remember being like, I want to I want to make movies after that for sure. Um, yeah. So yeah. that's that's really cool. Um, so was there a moment where you were like, I have to go into into film? Was it Jurassic Park or was it was uh, there like some other moment pretty- where you were like, I've got to go this route? It, I mean, obviously, I think with any creative uh, uh, creative inspiration out there, uh, especially in regards to a massive art form like filmmaking, there's, there's several different moments uh, in anybody's life. But the main one happened in regards to Jurassic Park. And it started with just a feeling. It, obviously, the iconic uh, T-Rex escape halfway through the movie. Um just just like this is the perfect amalgamation of so many emotions it almost feels like this one own emotion that i've never even felt before just a little it's just fear but mixed with this is the coolest thing i've ever seen mixed with 
a little bit of comedy even with the yeah. when you gotta go you gotta go yeah um but it, it wasn't that didn't quite solidify it yet it it definitely was i would say the inciting incident uh oh i like that to, to storytelling using, terms uh, using but, storytelling terms yeah nice but what really really clenched it was afterwards obviously i was what 10 11 years old at this point i came back and i kept talking about it in front of my parents you know my parents are like trying to cook dinner or something and i'm just like this little kid like oh and then this part in jurassic park and oh and this part in jurassic park and um there was one thing that that really stood out to me and this was just me in my regards to trying to learn uh continuity and cohesive storytelling and whatnot and i i mentioned in the final climactic moment when the t-rex is eventually inside that for one shot uh you can see behind the t-rex this gaping hole that that shows how the t-rex got into the building in the first place um and just just that level of thought i was really excited about and i thought it was brilliant even though i mean it's it's probably all in all, it's just like a cheat. They're probably just like, all right, we got to make a hole to, to make it seem like this dinosaur can get in this building. Yeah. But I, I mentioned that moment to my mom, and I was like, yeah, they even put a hole in the background so the T-Rex can get in. And my mom goes, yeah, well, you know, that's, that's Spielberg. And I completely shut up at that moment. And I said to myself, who's, who's Spielberg? And I, I couldn't go straight to Google at the time and look him up, but, but it in my... In my, I guess, uh, naive 10, 11 year old self, before that moment, movies were just made by filmmakers. At the time, it didn't seem like a singular person could put their stamp on a movie. Or one could be, I mean, in another film term, an auteur of, of a film. Back then, they were just collaborations and, and company things that just came out. And all of a sudden, I realized that. There is, there is a, a an author of of movies, and and it never really even occurred to me that you can put yourself into a movie. Now, chances are that wasn't Spielberg being like, "We got to create a hole over there." That was more so the team, but just that awakening, that's that moment of, oh my gosh, this is this is not just a movie. This is one's personal expression. Yeah. Super well said. Yeah, the Otor so stamp was, for sure. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, and then when you start to realize, you're like, who's this guy, Steven Spielberg? And then you're like, oh, he did Indiana Jones. Like, oh, I love that movie. It's like, oh, he did E.T. He did, yeah. I love that movie. Oh, he did Jaws. I love, you know, and you start to be like, yeah, I mean, he's got a great team around him. And, you know, obviously, you know how collaborative an act like filmmaking is and how many moving parts and how many pieces or whatnot, but yeah, having like that through line and that commitment to the, the details and the, the small details, um, I really think is one of, one of the many things that make him so special that the world, the world building, you know, the world creating as well. And like you said, like there, there's a, there's a world in a box kind of feeling there's, and I like that you said there was this emotional feeling that you've never quite felt that vibrant, you know, that vibration before. And it was just, so powerful and just had you like in a tractor beam and you know you and everybody else who saw that movie i mean what a movies that show you what movies can do you know right movies that open doors more open more doors than they close that they yeah like you said the magic trick the, the wonder the awe and i really feel like spielberg of all 
you know, then there's many, many greats. Uh, but his ability to kind of find the kid in us all. We were actually kids for a lot of the time when we were the formative years when we were kids. But I mean, yep. like, I just watched it again. And I'll, every single time I see this movie and a lot of his movies, I get that feeling that you're saying. Like that like Christmas morning or something, right? That that mm-hmm. That just powerful positive and yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of horror and there's a lot of horror in his movies and especially in Jurassic Park and Jaws and but the ability to kind of make it more about the wonder of the creatures yes they're powerful yes they can kill you they can rip you to pieces but the ability to create that wonder and fascination of seeing it and making it real on screen and like you said the commitment and follow through sound design um, it doesn't sound like a lion's roar. It sounds like, Aah! you know, and just the power and that last roar when the, when the banner falls down in the visitor center, when they escape and they get in the Jeep and that last moment of the T-Rex bellowing out. I mean, I'm literally getting goosebumps again, just <laughs> telling you the story. It's great. Uh, it's, they just, they have that power to it. And I remember watching the making of with you when we lived together in New Mexico, we watched it a few times. Uh, so I, I, I feel like I've seen the making of with you like three times or something like that, at least twice. And there's a part where, uh, Steven's like off camera and they're doing their, they're doing the uh, raptors in the cage part where they're feeding them. And Steven's like making the noises. He's like, rah, 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 rah. and then even Dean Cundy's like, check yep. out this guy. He's this a little, guy. he's a little right. nuts, but <laughs> he's like a kid, man. He's just a kid in a candy store. And it comes through. Not to say he's not a genius and the framing and the pacing and the direction is staggering, right? But that ability to like bring out the inner, the inner kid in you, I really think is what makes a lot of his films so powerful because they have that, they have that wonder to Absolutely. them. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think it was, a, it was definitely at least a couple of years ago, maybe longer, uh, that James Cameron actually went on record being like, you know, at one point... In a very James Cameron sort of way. He's like, you know, at, at one point I was up for Jurassic Park and, and you know, mine would have been great, but mine would have been a lot, a lot darker. And actually, kudos to him. He, he said, and you know what? Steven was the right guy for the job because in the end, uh, dinosaurs are for kids. Um, not the best way of putting it, but I, I, I see what he re- see where he was going with that. Right. Um, uh, as opposed to like say the new Jurassic World movies, they're they're certainly for kids, but they're also a lot darker. And and in my mind, they don't they don't work as well. There's not as much innocence. There's not as much discovery. There's not as much uh, appreciation for the 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 wild rawness of of nature and its unpredictability. Uh, you know, essentially Jeff Golem's character. Um, yeah. Yeah, and like you were saying, the the humor really comes across. And um, not just in that it's like funny people like Jeff Goldblum is a hilarious guy. I think Sam Neill has some absolutely wonderfully hilarious moments, but they all come from like a place of honesty. And like when he doesn't want to sit with Tim in the car when they're when they're first getting on the trip and he's like trying to avoid Tim, like that's hilarious. He's he's scared of kids. He's terrified of the idea of kids. He said it right in the very beginning. Babies smell. And uh, (laughs) so many lines from this movie, man. Like, how many iconic lines can you have in one movie? Apparently, uh, a million if you're Jurassic Park. Yeah. 
Uh, but then, yeah, and then he just runs smack dab into having to kind of be the parent, be the parent figure, you know, and that arc. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the end, you know, even when they're sitting in the tree and they're both sitting on him and he's like, I'll stay up all night. Don't worry. I got you. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the dad. I'm going to watch over you, you know, and that tenderness. Um, sure. My kind of darker cynical side now thinks that maybe Tim probably would have died with 10,000 volts of electricity going through him, but Hey, his hair stood up. He felt yep. it. Yep. It didn't uh, catch on fire. It didn't catch on fire. I'm so glad. I'm not saying I want Tim dead, Rick. Don't put that on me. Uh, <laughs> I, I, to each his own. To each his own. It certainly would have been uh, a different movie. Yeah. And people Better, definitely. Maybe? I don't know. Yeah. No, 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 no. Um, that's Spielberg for you. He manages to be positive and optimistic, but he's certainly not sugarcoating the horror elements. Yep. I mean, Nedry don't doesn't make it. Arnold doesn't make it. But I do want to say on that note, in the book, not to get too much into the book, but Hammond does die. And I felt that the movie does more with that character to kind of have that redemptive element where mm-hmm. he he learns from his mistake without paying the ultimate price. But by realizing that what he was trying to do was you know, kind of Prometheus stealing fire from the gods or crossing the streams or whatever, opening up Pandora's box. You know, there's that element of trying to play God and it backfiring. And uh, I think to me, that's kind of the cool one of the, well, one of the core messages of this movie, because it's so dense and so layered. I don't want to just say it has one, one hook, one through line of idea to it. But to me, that was kind of the main lesson was, Right, you know, don't meddle in things that we don't know so much about. Especially, we, we rushed it. You know, they filled it with frog DNA, and that ended up making them male from female, because some amphibians can... Anyway, it was, that's basically the way of saying, like, there's so many variables. Life finds a way. Great mm-hmm. line. So, to me, I think keeping Hammond alive was a very Spielberg choice that I think makes the message stronger. Obviously... He goes back for more in two, which is another reason I don't really care for two as much because it's like, all right, you didn't learn your lesson the first time. Obviously, there's there's a box office to satisfy right. and uh, right. all that. Um, but sequels kind of are a way of, ch- of chasing as well, you know, chasing yeah. that chasing that dream or whatever, kind of chasing the hook. And some are great. Terminator 2, for example, I think is one of the best sequels ever made by Cameron to another nod to Cameron. And obviously... Uh, with the CG effects, I remember watching your making of on your DVD of JP. Uh, that's Jurassic Park for the lay people. Uh, but if you're cool like us, you can say JP. Not not Judas Priest. <laughs> not Judas Priest. Great fan. But watching it and uh, the, yeah, the CG was definitely like they were like, oh wow, the, the Terminator Two, the T1000 was really and the tendril, like you were saying, the abyss, like. We, we can do this CG technology. And I'll never forget seeing the, was it mocap or whatever you call it? The, 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 um, not mocap, but it's very much like the claymation. Oh, go motion. Go motion. Thank you very much. Go motion. And I remember seeing the tests of it and it looks cool, but I think what they landed on was the blend of practical and the computer stuff, which was very cutting edge. So, you know, Cameron was definitely a big influence. All these other movies were a big influence, but I agree with uh, Cameron's words that this was this was a, a Spielberg choice and a Spielberg movie and it manages to have the thrills and the intensity 
But again, not really a monster movie, but showing the power of these things and the power of wielding and playing God and the, and the power of that. Um, and it certainly doesn't sugarcoat those elements, but at the end, I think it leaves you feeling pretty uplifted and the lesson is certainly learned, but exactly in a very positive exactly. way. And, and Spielberg's done it before, you know, he in, in, in Jaws, you know, uh, there was the Captain Ahab. You know, uh, because Robert Shaw's character knew no other boundaries. Right. Um, he, he had to his lesson was to be devoured by the one thing that was his drive, essentially. Um, but you're absolutely right. In Jurassic Park, there was there was Hammond, who who is also he's, he's not just like this, this CEO of a company. And that's all he is. Um, mm-hmm. He's also a grandfather. And he's actually a loving grandfather who is very into his um, his creation, but is also blind to it. Despite everybody that's telling him, you know, you might want to take a, a wider look at things here. And so I, I, I think you're absolutely right. The, the lesson is learned and there is still a downfall. There is 100 percent a downfall without including uh, a death by by compies. Right, right. Oh, right. It was compies, which we don't actually see yep. in the film. Uh, we just see in the second film, but mm-hmm. that's really well said. And yeah, the kind of myopic, like blind, just, you know, obviously he had the drive. Creation is an act of sheer will. I love that line, which is right before he realizes he's gone too far when they're eating ice cream um, mm-hmm. with Laura Dern. He's eating ice cream. and You never had power. That's the illusion. Yes. Wow. Yeah, you literally got the word illusion in there. Uh, you yeah. know, I wanted to show them something, something real, right? So he's been chasing this for so long. But what he doesn't realize is it is real, and the threat is very real, too. So by by crossing those streams, and yeah, I mean, uh, what, a, what a powerful piece. And I like how you said Ahab, kind of, um, you know, Ahab was definitely kind of man versus uh, nature or man versus God. You could say that the in Moby Dick that the white whale represented god or nature mm-hmm. um so there's a lot of there's a lot of great man versus nature stuff going on here man versus yeah. society kind of the the economic drive which is also in jaws like the drive between wanting to open the economy versus safety so that push pull um yeah but yeah again yeah when when man uh when man thinks he's or she's above nature or or god or whatever symbology you want to subscribe to, you know, or assign to it, then, then that's when we get into trouble. Right. Um, yeah. Well, it's funny now that you mention it, this movie does have an Ahab. It does have granted. He's, he's much smarter, uh, Muldoon. more intelligent. Yeah. Wow. Huh? I never thought of that before, but, and be, and mostly because he's not a, a main character, but he is definitely the, the, the person who is supposed to wield um, these dinosaurs outside of, like, the park fences. Yeah. Um, he's, he's the guy that respects the dinosaurs, but in the end still thinks he's above them, uh, probably due to intelligence and just yeah. um, his background. But, yeah. Man, that's yeah. And, of really course, he does. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I actually just noticed this morning... I'm- we were chatting uh, a, bit, a bit before we recorded. Uh, Bob Peck, who plays Robert Muldoon, brilliantly, he passed away in 99. He was only 53. Yeah. I didn't realize. But anyway, yeah, he, 
he, like you said, it's a definitely a supporting role, but by no means an insignificant role or not important Absolutely. role. And I love that. Yeah, he, the hubris, right? When when sh- when sh- being uh, when confronted by the Raptors and the showdown with the Raptors, really got him. Huh? Um, and his his death again to tie into our previous uh, bullet point about having horror without the full horror. I actually think that seeing him get eaten by that raptor behind the the ferns and behind the the plants, the palm fronds, the palm fronds yeah. is way more horrific than ever seeing it. If you saw yeah. like the face being ripped off or clawed off or whatever, um, yeah, something Which about was just it a being, fix. yeah, less is definitely more, you know. And yeah, you're right. He is kind of the man. I love that. Wow, Rick, brilliant. I love that he's the Ahab. Mm-hmm. Right, the hubris. And, you know, Hammond, obviously, somewhere on the long li- along the line, hired this guy to kind of be the badass, like, safari dude. In the book, you get to see some of his early hunting, um, early safaris with lions and stuff to kind of show that this guy's logged some hours in the, in the field, in the trenches, with some crazy wild animals. But even, even Robert Muldoon met his match with, with the raptors. So... Yeah, yeah. So the lesson is really learned, and you know they commit to certain characters dying. And I think you have to have you have to have some blood sacrifice to to make your point that you're messing with um, powers that are beyond our control or should never really be within our control. And what I and I've said this on the show before, and I've I've actually heard Michael Crichton and Spielberg both say this that they want to give you a lesson but they want to put it in a sugar-coated pill or a sugar-coated capsule or whatever, a spoonful of sugar, so that you don't think of it as a lesson. And here in Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. we get a real good crash course on on genetics. We really do. You know, by them showing us the park and showing us how they do it with this gene sequencing and the amber, and they give us this whole actual crash course. In, and actually, I just saw an article that they're thinking that there is... They might, we might actually be able to make dinosaurs from, from mosquito. Um, oh man. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of, obviously the theoretical stuff, but a lot of really cutting edge and, you know, Michael Crichton is definitely known for giving you a lot of, a lot of great actual science embedded with a lot of theoretical sci-fi, but yes, that ability to give you so much of a lesson and then the back, what hour, at least 45 minutes of JP are just kind of a ride <laughs> right harrowing and non and by the time the movie's over you're like that was just non-stop action for two hours or whatever but in reality there was a lot of real theory debate not just looking at the science but looking at the uh, the ethics of the science you know just because uh, you guys were so your scientists were so obsessed with the fact that they could do a thing they shouldn't they didn't stop to think if they should line for me and malcolm which which is wonderful again like we really are seeing we've cracked the genome you know humans have done some awesome stuff and i'm i'm a proud human and uh we've done a lot of cool stuff and i think that's great but we got to make sure that we keep keep an eye on what we should do or the ethical implications or right introducing old ecosystems back to now ecosystems and that juxtaposition so yeah, I mean, I really just think that these these guys, uh, or they we're seeing we're seeing master people at the top of their game. And um, rest in peace, Crichton. He's he's one of my favorite authors as well. And um, Jurassic Park might be my favorite book by him, actually. 
Uh, and there are a lot of ideas in earlier novels, Congo and whatnot, but um, I think they really came to a head in a very explosive way in, in Jurassic Park. And getting Spielberg, I think, to visually breathe it to life um, is just uh, was the right choice for so many reasons. Oh, yeah. Wow. What a movie. Man. <laughs> um, I feel like I want to ask you more questions about your journey. And then we'll get back. Okay. We'll get back to JP, but uh, this will kind of cool. be more in- intermingled than usual. But that's okay. We can do whatever we want. <laughs> this is our show. We got time. We've got time. <laughs> yeah, we've got time. It's gonna be. It's gonna be a nine-week-long episode between me and Rick. And uh, yeah, actually, no. And even then, we wouldn't have covered this whole movie. I know. <laughs> I know. I, I say this every time that I I don't want to try to get to every nook and cranny because there are a million and we just wouldn't be yeah. able to. And then also, you know, I don't want to just like rattle off facts and stuff. You can go to Wikipedia and get a laundry list of facts, but I'm more interested in interpreting that data and looking for the powerful allegory, the messages, the microcosms, if you were. Mm-hmm. And also the zeitgeists. And I think uh, Spielberg is also a master of zeitgeist because he just seems to either if he's a step ahead or he's right alongside. But it just seems to always kind of, when at his best, he seems to really nail it on the head. And I think this movie is timeless because it, it is because of these themes that we're, we're talking about. Um, but Rick Galley is also timeless and you, uh, you're an amazing director of photography and I actually am excited to talk to a director of photography on the show. Cause I think it's a job that isn't always necessarily as clearly defined as other jobs. And a lot of the time the director probably gets more credit than they deserve. <laughs> Not to say that there aren't some great directors and, uh, it's a collaboration. Um, but director of photography is an extremely important job. And yes, the director has some to do with the framing and the pacing and all that. But I think a lot of the actual shots and the breakdown of the shots has to do with cinematographers, their choices. Um, so I, I'm really looking forward to kind of breaking down maybe some of your approach and how you come at filming a movie. Um, do you do you ever have any... Uh, I'm asking you... You're, you're, you're making Rick's making a scared face. I'm asking really hard questions, aren't I? No, no, it's not at all. I, it's it's funny because it's it's one of those things that like I think there's so much to talk about. And what's funny is I have Jurassic Park going in the top right hand corner of my computer screen right now. Awesome. And it's it's right now it's the moment where the camera is craning over this. Uh, maybe you need to bleep this out. A big pile of shit. <laughs> nope, it's staying um, in. It's staying in. Okay. <laughs> In fact, I'm going to put an echo on it when you say it, and it's gonna... you've already heard it now. But... Shit, 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 shit. <laughs> um, That's hilarious. But, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's certainly a collaboration. Yeah. Um, there, there are definitely directors that go into certain projects, uh, like Spielberg, um, having things storyboarded. Uh, he'll be on set, you know, he'll, he'll be making, like, this gesture with his hands uh, he, he knows exactly yeah. well not exactly but he has a very good idea of how he wants um the story to be told uh through the frame um that doesn't mean that especially in the case of jurassic park that 
things happen and you might not be able to get that shot. And what do you do? You need to rely on, on other minds, other voices, especially um, filling in the gaps. Uh, and that's, that's what I think a director of photography does so very well is um, take, take an idea like a vision and expand upon it. Like, for example, the director has so many things on his plate. You know, he's got to worry about um, set deck, um, art direction, especially these days, VFX. Um, mm -hmm. um, and not to mention everything else. And the director of photography fills in the things that a director's mind may not be as detail-oriented with. Um, mm -hmm. Like specific lighting, specific colors. Um, things that the director may not even think about, but absolutely adds to the vision, like a reflection that might be here that they add upon, um, um, and stuff like that. Like right, right now I'm, I'm looking at right when Nedry is about to hit the execute button and he's wearing, um, something that many people consider to be a direct reference to the Goonies. Um, oh. that that Nedry throughout the movie is wearing almost exact wardrobe from A, Chunk, B, uh, Mouth, um, and C, uh, Mikey in his uh, yellow, yellow rain slicker. Those are things that definitely um, come from, say, like Spielberg, like working with the costume designer and so on and so forth. Um, and yet how the director of photography lights said um wardrobe um makes it in a way that you wouldn't even think of that that connection to goonies because goonies looks completely different right goonies is yeah and i certainly and never made that connection by the way that's crazy that's awesome yeah. another easter egg kind yeah. of situation yeah um cool. i love so that. it's and and obviously a director of photography is is definitely um uh, what I like about it is the puzzle aspect of it. Um, you are constantly trying to make a shot work. Uh, I, I call it the dance, right? It, the, it's the camera literally dancing with the actors in the set and so on and so forth. And to have a successful dance, you know, you got to make sure things flow right. Mm -hmm. Like you can't have, you got to be able to move things around. You got to make sure that the camera can adequately fit here without bumping into this and it's got to actually move through this area here and up and over and yet still maintain uh the the smoothness and, and what the shot is trying to convey um along with all the other pieces uh and collaboration with say your gaffer and the lighting and probably in the case of jurassic park even your second unit you know you you have a completely second unit uh, who is doing shots for you that have to match what you're doing. Right. Um, just to be able to, to make all these shots that you don't need the principal actors for. Uh, and that all comes down to communication and collaboration. Um, it, is, it is definitely just this gigantic tree branch of responsibility and communication. And Jurassic Park is a perfect example of how all these little pieces can come together. Even if the original pieces... For example, the the T-Rex escape don't come together as you planned. You can still create something that may even be better in the long run, like right. happy mistakes and so on and so forth. Um, so, yes, obviously the DP of Jurassic Park is Dean Cundey. Um, Legend. 
yeah, uh, he he did Back to the Future. He did Hook. Um, he's done so many movies that you say to yourself, "Whoa!" Like, just like you were saying before about oh, you realize oh Spielberg also did that. Jaws. He did Indiana Jones as well. What I like the Spielberg guy. It's the same thing with right. with Dean Cundey for me. Yeah, um, he's amazing. And John Car- obviously John Carpenter. The connection with John Carpenter and the thing. Yeah, yeah, the thing. I yeah. mean, the guy who shot the thing and Jurassic Park and Back to the Future. It's like he can do nothing for the rest of his life, and that's good. Yeah, uh, just these iconic these iconic movies that are woven into the tapestry, such touchstones, right? That we all are part of and 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 have access to. And uh, yeah, so. Um, you do a lot of storyboarding with the director. You, you've been doing that right now with John Graham, getting ready for uh, this mm-hmm. next one, right? I know the last couple of times mm-hmm. I talked to you were in the middle, in the throes of all that stuff. Do you find that you mostly stick to what you have storyboarded or you pivot, but you're like, okay, well, we're telling this, we're, we're saying this part of the story with this part of the story. For the, for the lay people, the storyboards are like comic books that you draw of the shots you want. So when you get on the set, you have this kind of tapestry in front of you. Do you find that you deviate a lot or do you mostly stick to what you have? Uh, it's every, every situation, every movie, every setup is different. Yeah. Um, if, if it's something that you do go that much into planning before ahead of time, uh, yes, you try to stick to it as much as possible within the constraints of everything that could be happening. You could, something could break, you could get inclement weather, um, you may arrive on set and all of a sudden uh, things aren't quite right and you have to adjust, but you still kind of maintain uh, the same goal. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so yes, absolutely in regards to that. Um, granted, things happen and you, you have to change around, but there are also directors out there that just go in on a whim you know they they don't plan at all i've had directors come up to me and be like you know what just just find a shot that looks good uh with with no communication whatsoever and sometimes that works out great uh sometimes i find a shot and he or she says they love it and other times i find a shot that i love and the director's like "Mm, this isn't quite what i was thinking yeah but then the gp says well wait a minute what were you thinking because you haven't told me anything yeah <laughs> now we're communicating and we actually just wasted a little bit of time so we might have to cut some shots now um yes so it it all it all comes down to your 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 artistic uh kind of way of working um and sometimes it's very collaborative uh sometimes it's collaborative in certain ways but not in others um but yeah that's that's kind of the the fun of it yeah um, yeah, you called it a puzzle. I like that. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, you're you're just you're constantly just going with the flow. Um, uh, I have a quick example. Um, this is not related to Jurassic Park, but there's a story that happened on another Spielberg movie called Saving Private Ryan, where I've never heard of that movie. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> is, it, is it good? Hey, it's okay. You know, it's, it's, there's there's a lot of there's lots of explosions and stuff like. Oh, that. Oh well, then I gotta it's see not it. For I gotta see it then. Yeah. <laughs> Pyromaniacs again, as we were saying before. But anyway, sorry to cut you off. Go ahead, please. No, no. Can't there wait was, for this. There was one moment when they they arrived to set one day, and this is the scene where they're supposed to uh, attack this machine gun nest. And if you've seen the movie, it, it's the moment where uh, Wade, the medic, ends up being killed. 
so they arrived to set that day and and all of a sudden uh we spielberg realizes that they built the sets not according to specifications and it was actually built in a wrong angle so the sun is in a complete wrong spot when they when they arrived to set um so at this point spielberg understandably is is a little upset and he says you know what i gotta go take a walk i gotta go take a walk just by himself he goes out and i don't know how much time but he comes back and he says all right guys i know how we're going to shoot this now and they had this big old action sequence planned but because of that one walk he decided to shoot the whole sequence from the perspective of the uh, the translator in the group a aka kind of the the coward the the one who hasn't seen a whole lot of action and most of this shot he's just looking through most of the scene he's just looking through this this scope and watching the battle from a distance um that is a perfect example of of things can change and sometimes things can even change for the better um in regards to cinematography and, and all this other stuff because i'm sure at that point um the dp came in uh janus kaminsky uh came in and said uh yeah we can set up over here the sun's in the right direction here uh we've got this telephoto lens that we can we can kind of mimic the uh looking through the viewfinder from uh or the the scope from um but and yeah it what's great about that is if the movie had gone as planned it just would have been this other action sequence this other battle and no one knows what that would have looked like but it probably would have been maybe a bit too much because we've yeah. seen battle sequences this whole movie this was right not only uh, a window into this one character's mind but it's a it was a new way of telling the same exact thing but differently and in a way that didn't that was refreshing even um and didn't kind of like uh retract from the story man that's so, so well and, yeah where's the emotional the emotional through line yeah if you were yeah yeah, and things like that happened in the sequence I'm watching right now on my computer, the T-Rex sequence. So many things went wrong with that. Uh, yeah. they did they did their best to try to to minimize the issues. They shot indoors. Granted, it was still raining, but they had all these problems with the animatronic T-Rex. And in the end, they they made it work with um, not just what they had, but they added to it with an amazing soundtrack and score not score because there is no score during the scene but uh sound mixing and sound effects um yeah yeah exactly yeah and then uh i actually was watching a little thing last night about why jurassic park it's called why jurassic park is better than its sequels it's on youtube it's about an eight minute bit about a lot of the time where what lens not literal lens, but like what lens you look at something like either through a door or through a window or not seeing it mostly all the way. And mm -hmm. uh, the person described it that uh, all is about scope and scale. So when you see the, you know, when you see the, in the beginning, when we get Jurassic Park and you see the brontosaurus eating from the tree and we, and you know, and Grant's dwarfed and we're, we're low angle looking up, you get that sense of wonder and the humans only like the bottom third of the scale where, you know, the rest of the, the dinosaur just stretches and stretches and stretches. And then later we're really tight and, and he says horror is claustrophobic where we're really tight and we're in the Jeep and we're through the window and it's raining. And yeah, and being able to do it in a way where you don't see it mostly like straight up front, front to back 
uh, creates that awe and that's that sense of scale and scope and like through the the jeep window you can really feel it you know and uh, mm -hmm. so the choice of and the emotional choices like a director of photography isn't just supposed to make it look pretty you know it goes well beyond pretty or not pretty which is kind of a that's a relative personal choice of what's pretty or not eye of the beholder or whatever you want to call it but like not just well framed and good looking but like what's the emotion what's and i think what you're saying is really going for the emotional choice rather than mm -hmm. oh let's just show this giant battle and yeah we've like the beginning of the movie is already an onslaught on your senses of seven Brother Ryan, for example which is a fantastic movie and uh i might even watch tomorrow i don't know nice what do you think uh, Rick actually uh, famously. Time to watch them. Oh yeah, sorry, I cut you off. I was just gonna say Rick uh, famously shows you show Jaws, you show a League of Their Own, uh, Independence Day. Oh yes. And I was actually just thinking, Rick, it's been one year to the day already since we saw at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, which is not open right now, but uh, oh, yeah. Mad Max Fury Road with fireworks. And then we came here afterwards, and I remember. Uh, putting on Independence Day, which you and I used to always watch on every 4th of July together. Um, mm -hmm. But, yeah. It's a wonderful tradition. It's a wonderful tradition. Tomorrow I'm going to be having movies on and just be uh, playing Jackbox online. And then I think at night I'm going to bike around and check out the fireworks, see how they go. Nice. So, try to keep it Working. less depressing because they don't want us to gather, which I understand. Yeah. Safety first. Safety first. But anyway, but yeah, the, the, emo the emotional choice and Spielberg is a master of emotions. And I remember him saying about the end of Jaws where the shark blows up and then they're like, this probably wouldn't happen. It's probably, you know, I don't think this is really the realistic choice, but it was the emotional choice because he's like, I needed the shark to explode in a triumphant <laughs> rain of, <laughs> rain of uh, viscera and smoke and water and uh, I wanted that hurrah moment and I think when you watch Jaws you're not thinking oh that would never work out oh that that's not realistic it's like well if you're at if you're saying that it's not realistic you're not emotionally on board because his movies are just such a an emotional roller coaster and uh, what how does a shot make you feel what's the emotional connection so mm -hmm. that's great that he took a moment and he found it. He went on his walk. That's a great story. I've never heard that one. And uh, what's the emotional choice? Like, I I'm kind of glad that the shark and jaws didn't work. You know, I think that was a lesson to him, a lesson yeah. to everybody involved. Like, and you know, what did they do? They made the POV. They make you the shark. And how great is that? And the same exact thing happened in Jurassic Park. Um, not not just in regards to the T-Rex not working at times either. Uh, obviously, they had historically more success with the T-Rex than they did the Jaws. But Spielberg did the same thing. He, he had this original vision for the end of the movie of Jurassic Park, which was literally they were about to get eaten by the, um, the Velociraptors. And Hammond shows up with a shotgun, and he shoots the Velociraptors. Now, not only does that take away from what we were talking about before with, with Hammond and his innocence and his, his learning experience because 
him showing up like Schwarzenegger at the end of the movie and blowing away some Raptors, I think, would A, detract from that. But B, Spielberg, after entertaining everything going on with, with ILM and, and how they were going to be doing this, uh, these massive effects, he said to himself, I need to bring this T-Rex back or the audience is going to kill me. Because the, the last time you would have seen the T-Rex would have been when he's eating the Gallimimus. Which is cool, but you see it for like one shot. Literally just one shot. And then you hear it and Tim's responding, oh, look at all the blood and it's a nice comedic moment. But that would have been the last time in the original vision that we have seen the T-Rex. Yeah. So... Um, he becomes the hero by bringing him back and saving them at the Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and taking it away from Hammond, which I think is, is absolutely the right decision. Yeah. Yeah, because Hammond was the hero in that he's finally realized that it's time to just leave. People yeah. are dying. Yeah. You know? And he's there with the Jeep. Uh, I've decided not to endorse your park. They jump in the Jeep and he says, it's over. And yep. that acknowledgement, surrendering, is what makes him human, is what yeah. redeems him, the redemptive moment, right? But yeah, seeing it with the, the shotgun would be would be so dumb. <laughs> but you, right, but and and the power, the first half of the movie he has power, the second half of the movie he shouldn't have power. Him showing up with a shotgun would be him taking control of the situation, which is in my mind not the uh, the way to tell his arc. Very well said. Yeah, for sure, for sure, man. That's great. Yeah, and giving the giving the monster that was the T Rex. Again, portraying monsters as not just monsters, but animals as as creatures, not mm-hmm. just like even I remember him saying, oh, in the beginning of Jaws, we were going to originally see the, the shark breach and eat the girl at the buoy. The swimmer, the first kill. But by doing it underwater, by making it invisible. It's taking away from the fact that it's a monster, but just kind of making it do its thing. It's just doing its thing. The T-Rex isn't the villain here. The T-Rex didn't ask to be cloned. And brought back from the dead from 65 million years ago that was the metal the meddling of, of humanity is really the villain but so by by bringing the t-rex back in a in a very like triumphant way uh i think really helps that message al- along and it's also a, just a wonderful wonderful moment again going for the hurrah moment i mean that that moment where the t-rex belts out after it throws the raptor into the skeleton, and we get to see the banner Jurassic Park fall down, you know, it's so powerful. It's such a powerful emotional moment that just puts a bow on it, right? And making that choice, and then you said, "Oh, well, how did he get in?" But you can actually see that there's a hole, and I love that you caught that at ten years old or whatever you were. I didn't even catch that until maybe my thirtieth viewing, really. Um, granted, they probably would have heard him coming. But that's okay. Whatever. You would think so. Yeah. It, what you know when you can feel your foots, his footsteps from. I'm sorry, her. Her. All the, her all, footsteps. All the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park are female. Um, when you can feel her footsteps from from that far away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But again, right? Like, like with the with the the oxygen canister and Jaws, would that work? Yes or no? Probably not. But it's just it solidifies the emotional triumphant moment and Spielberg said I needed that I needed that hurrah moment right and uh, mm-hmm. and you're so on the ride you're so on board that you know you're not like oh well I probably would have heard the T-Rex you know who cares they're fighting the rafters and you get that moment and then you get a moment where it's not just the dinosaurs are evil I don't love it, it's, it's all about 
showing the relativity, right? You know, it's not just like clear cut, like good, bad. Um, obviously, the T Rex is is definitely an antagonist, at least in the Jeep scene. You know, during the yeah. storm, the sequence you were just talking about. But uh, having him come back and 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 show the food chain with the raptors and you know he's just doing his thing, he's just T Rexing, man. Exactly. Can't fault him for it. He's doing what you want him to. He's doing what he's naturally do. And so it's yeah. a movie about unearthing creatures that were extinct long ago and then bringing them back, which is ethically wrong. Um, I really hope that we don't actually do this and and fall for the same mistakes that Hammond did. Have we learned nothing? Okay. Um, in regards to kind of a, a DP, director of photography, through that lens, if you were, uh, I just learned from that same video I was just talking about that uh, that the aspect ratio of this movie is counter to most aspect ratios for a lot of action movies. I actually, I've, I'm really, I always have to look up the the numbering on the on the aspect ratios. You probably have them all memorized as a director of photography, but um, most action films are in what's called cinemascope, which is two, three, five by one. So you get, correct me if I'm wrong, but you get kind of a wider. It's like more widescreen, right? Uh, yeah. So, so everybody at home, uh, they they essentially know what um, sixteen by nine is, right? Most of us have sixteen by nine TVs these days, as opposed to the the square box ones we we had when uh, well when Jurassic Park first came out. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, Jurassic Park in itself was shot in an aspect ratio called one eight five. And essentially, it is, for the most part, fitting to your 16 by 9 TV, but it has just a very little strip of black at the top and the bottom of the frame. There is really not that much difference between that and the 16 by 9. Now, most movies these days are shot, yes, and they call it CinemaScope. Um, there's a lot of different numbers that are added to it. Uh, most accurately, it is 239 as opposed to 235 or 240. Um, there are many different reasons for that. Uh, an audio track being added uh, later in the day um, kind of minimized some resolution and so on and so forth. But um, essentially, this is an aspect ratio that came about um, a while back when movies were trying to compete with this new revolution called television. Uh, people were going to the movies less because they were staying at home watching TV. Um, and aspect ratio back then didn't matter because people would rather be home watching this, this brand new invention. So the film industry came up with a lot of different new things to, to combat that. Uh, 3D was one of them. Uh, some of us probably remember the, the red and blue glasses. Yep. Um, <clears throat> They even explored uh, smell-o-vision, uh, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but one thing they played around with a lot, and you see this in movies like Ben-Hur, uh, even Lady and the Tramp, um, is this much wider, wider field of vision, um, sometimes done with different lens- lenses, uh, called anamorphic lenses, sometimes done with just by putting black bars on it. But essentially, we've all seen movies on our 16 by 9 TVs that have much thicker black bars at the top and the bottom. And that is essentially the, the aspect ratio um, 
the standard is two three nine although certain movies like most uh most recently example um the hateful eight mm. um shot at a much wider aspect ratio close to what uh like ben-hur did back in the day um and that is that is widely considered the film look right mm-hmm. you've got you've got a much wider feel of vision it's much more epic lawrence of arabia style mm-hmm. um yeah. uh plus it allows you to use you know different lenses that that mimic like the jj abrams look with the flares and whatnot that is a typical anamorphic lens uh mm-hmm. kind of artifact um and so basically what they did with jurassic park is avoid that um Back then in the 90s, uh, um, the wider, not the wider, but uh, the uh, the 185 uh, aspect ratio um, was definitely more common. It was certainly wider than the 4x3 TVs you watch at home. Um, but in, in this example, it worked amazing for Jurassic Park because you have more room above and below the frame. Hence, you can see way more of these dinosaurs um and yeah it's called one eight one eight one to one is that what it's called rick uh what one eight five one eight five i mean yeah okay um and there's 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 a there there's there's many other added things like the to one is is also added as well but on set we just kind of like usually simplify it to yeah to that um but what's great in the video that that you shared with me and that you were just talking about on youtube is that in the new movies Jurassic World, as opposed to the original Jurassic Park, they use very similar shots. Um, but the difference is the original Jurassic Park was 185, whereas the new ones are 239. Very, very similar shots. Like you still have people in the foreground and dinosaurs in the background. Right. But because the original Jurassic Park has so much room, more room on the top and the bottom of the frame, you could essentially get your camera closer yeah which which essentially put us more into the actor's shoes more into the right um, yeah you're in the mo- you're like literally in the movie you're like oh my god there's a dinosaur right yeah there. Ex- exactly <laughs> exactly yeah, um that's so cool in two three nine you have more rooms on the sides mm-hmm. which is great for maybe like if, if you're showing like a a battleship right yeah something like two three nine is wonderful because you can show the head and the I don't know the nautical terms. I'm sorry. Um, you can show the, the the front of the ship and the back of the ship in the same shot. So so with a battleship, that is a great uh, reason for going with something like two three nine because you've got a much wider field of vision and it because it's um, it's horizontal. Now with a movie like Jurassic Park, you're dealing less with horizontal and more with vertical. Vertical. Because these dinosaurs are are obviously towering above you, yeah. Um, so that's where I think they used uh, the frame and more specifically the aspect ratio to their advantage. Wow, it's so cool to hear a, a DP break it down and chop it up like that. That's so cool. And yeah, there's so many choices where you, you know, obviously most people don't go to the movie and think about aspect ratio as much, but I think that it's one of those things that that's definitely a, a, a huge impact. Whether or not it's like like the like almost like the score, like you're not always necessarily hearing it, hearing it, hearing it, but it's there, influencing your your emotions. So it's definitely a choice. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and 
those shots of like looking up at the dinosaurs and just feeling that the scale and scope of it and feeling that scale and scope disparity just brings it into the it, it, it again emotional you just feel it yeah you just feel how big they are right uh it's super powerful talking about a, a different movie real quick and you can even cut this if you'd like um but uh galaxy quest oh i'm not cutting it did you did, did you watch did you watch the documentary i still haven't oh my goodness about? i keep forgetting okay. i have to i love that movie so much so relating to aspect ratios one interesting thing that they did only in theaters you, you can't see this uh on video on demand or or anywhere in the the home video market but in theaters, what they did in Galaxy Quest, and they go into this in the documentary, um, apparently when you watched it in theaters, the first good chunk of the movie is in the same aspect ratio as Jurassic Park. And yet, the, the very moment when um, Tim Allen has the wool taken from his eyes, when he's in the big room and the doors open up and all of a sudden they reveal space in front of him and he he realizes exactly what's going on for the first time in the movie in theaters they went from the jurassic park aspect ratio to 239 in one fluid motion changing the screen size really mid theater to kind of put you in the shoes of of tim allen and seeing this wide grandiose uh, the world opening cosmos up. shot yeah yeah wow. and at that point the rest of the movie was in the two three two three nine aspect ratio is that right i did not know that yeah, yeah. apparently it caused havoc because they didn't communicate with the uh the projectionists and they didn't know what was going to happen so the curtains on the sides were were still blocking they didn't know oh yeah the right curtains. the screen didn't shift and yeah yeah now i remember watching dark knight which was already 12 years ago now and yep. the seeing the screen and the the aspect ratio change in the middle of the shot, I think it was that the shot, uh, the oh yeah, the showdown with the Joker and the truck and yep. the motorcycle. Yep, that was, that so was the difference between them use going between thirty five millimeter film uh, with specific lenses to uh, the IMAX shots. Right. The IMAX the IMAX is when the uh, essentially the two three nine aspect ratio the bars on the top and the bottom are removed because you have such a bigger, bigger frame. Uh, range of resolution and, and frame to go with. Yeah. 70, right? So is it? Uh, yes. There, there is some IMAX that is 72, although that's mm-hmm. an older format. I'm not exactly sure what they used right. um, in Dark Knight. But yeah, it's, it's high 60s, 70s. Yeah, 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 for sure. Wow, that's so cool about Galaxy Quest. I have to watch the documentary. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to keep forgetting. Um. I love uh, love that movie so much, and I know I love that you love that movie as much as I do. And I'm a big Star Trek fan, so it's really this love letter to Star Trek. But it's like the real Star <laughs> Trek, where the actors on Star Trek actually have to go into space and like become their roles that they portray on TV. It's so brilliant and so meta, and the movie does such a good job. Uh, it's like breaking the fourth wall without breaking the fourth wall. Like, mm-hmm. it's so cool. I love that you just cited that. That's amazing. Um, well, back to Jurassic Park. Yes, it uh, it is a book, 1990, Michael Crichton, and then he wrote the screenplay with David Cup, and I'm really, really glad that Crichton was in charge of writing the screenplay. Obviously, there had to be a lot to be a lot that had to be cut out, but kind of putting it, I think, in his hands of what to cut out and what's kind of true to his own piece, 
And I love that he was kind of able to shepherd, shepherd the project from, uh, from pen to pen again, but yeah, uh, eventually to be shot. I really, really, really think that um, this is one of my favorite collaborations between uh, author and and director. And uh, I really think that I know that they met uh, well, somewhere in 1991. So the book was already kicking butt at the you know kicking butt. It was already on the national bestseller list. So they knew they had this hot project, but I know Spielberg really wanted to do something that dealt with genetics. Um, but he also said, no one's done dinosaurs on screen like this before. Minus, okay, like King Kong, and there were a couple other mm-hmm. movies, but nothing's really, really made a dinosaur movie. But then also something that was based in genetic research. And uh, I remember Spielberg, I want to say it might have been that making of that we watched together on your DVD in New Mexico. We watched it a couple times where he literally was like, Creighton and I operate the same way, where we want to have this message, we want to have this story, this lesson, but then we want to put it inside of a roller coaster so you don't even see it as a lesson. You're not like, oh, I'm going to sit down and learn about genetics. I'm going to sit down and learn about a virus, like an Andromeda strain, or I'm going to sit down and learn about you know monkeys and Congo. or It's just this awesome like theme park ride, and then it literally becomes a theme park ride <laughs> in uh, Jurassic Park. But I just think yeah. that this collaboration between these guys is at its peak here, and it's it's beautiful. And uh, I I, li- I like to think that we'll see more collaborations, uh, you know, between these two guys. I think Crichton is is gone, unfortunately. He left us. It's already been since '08 or so, '09. Um, but apparently, they found this pirate book on his laptop post death, and they literally. He hadn't been done working on it, but then I know Spielberg snatched up and, and bought the rights right away. This is already what's called Pirate Latitudes, and I would love to see like a Spielberg pirate movie. Um, I'm not sure mm-hmm. if that's kind of on his uh, list of to-do list right now anymore, but um, I was really glad we got to get Ready Player One. I didn't think we'd get another Spielberg kind of sci-fi romp. Um, he's definitely been doing a lot more, you know, dramas and heavier stuff. Love Bridge of Spies. I'm I'm still such a fan of his his work. Um, what was the one he did about the paper? Um, uh, the Post. The Post. Really like that one a lot. But it's still cool to see these kind of old you know old school romps that kind of harken back to the, this era you know. Um, and obviously that the T Rex made an appearance in Ready Player One. The DeLorean made an appearance. Uh, so it's cool to kind of see some of these uh, cultural iconic moments kind of brought back. Um, but do you think Spielberg will ever do a pirate movie? I hope so. Yeah. I mean, he did it. He did it great for Hook. Yeah. I mean, granted, it wasn't it wasn't necessarily a pirate movie. I love but that. It definitely had pirates. Yeah. Um, I uh, gosh, I certainly hope so. Um, uh, one thing that that brought to mind when you were talking about Crichton and Spielberg, one movie that kind of gets overlooked as not a direct director to writer. Um, collaboration, but certainly a producer to write a collaboration was Twister. Um, I am so glad you brought that up. Because Michael Crichton wrote Twister, and it's the same thing. It is yeah. a lesson about science, but also with respect to nature and all of its rawness, um, mm. bundled up in, in this roller coaster. You know, it's it's a popcorn movie, but you walk away learning about educated. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's so well said. And I, I literally just watched Twister a few weeks ago 
for the first time in a while since I probably watched it with you. I remember you and I would bust it out uh, when we lived together in New Mexico. You had a, the Blu-ray. I finally got it. Um, what a great movie. And then at the end of it, and I feel like I knew this at one point that Crichton uh, had, had a hand in the writing of it. Um, but I forgot. And then literally as soon as I saw his name, I was like, it's kind of a ride. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and uh, that's that's so cool. There's actually a guy named Picos Hank, who I, if you guys have, don't follow Picos Hank, follow Picos Hank on YouTube. If you want to see some of the most stunning tornado footage caught oh, on, yeah. and the guy is like nerves of steel, because usually it's like, okay, there's a tornado video, and they're like, ah, and the camera's shaking, and it looks, you know, that you feel like you're in the tornado, but he's literally like, oh my god, it's pure death look at it and he like he has like he has his uh, camera on his like dashboard but then he like gets out with the still camera and you just perfectly locked off framed shots of these these tornadoes so we've been watching a lot of these uh these tornado videos and then we're like we got to do twister because this guy pico sank really is like the real life um bill paxton from twister the extreme r.i.p <laughs> r.i.p bill r.i.p uh you know Crichton. Uh, Philip Seymour. Philip Seymour. I know, yeah. man. It's, it's tough. But, uh, and I just saw that they're, they're talking about rebooting Twister, so that's also been in my mind. So I'm really glad you brought up Twister because what a great movie. And, again, the I think the, the CG that they – because wasn't was Spielberg a producer on it? Or, yeah, executive producer. Executive yeah. producer, yeah. Uh, Jen DeBont directed it. Uh, he did a wonderful job. This movie is really good, and you nailed it on the head of how it's such a fun movie but also a great lesson and – how much we really don't know about these storms still, and we're learning a lot. And the the idea of capturing the data from within the storm and that being the goal um, is so cool. And it's just a really well put together like rom com in a lot of ways too. Mm-hmm. Between Helen yeah. Hunt and Bill Paxton, and he's trying to get married, he's trying to move on from her, and then they end up falling back in love together. And uh, they always were still in love. And it's such a great movie. It's got it all. And, and, again, the computer stuff really holds up. Of, I think the, the, the tornado stuff looks great. Looks great. Mm-hmm. Looks great. And, again, not showing it right away. We get to see it from the storm bunker, and we lose the father as he gets ripped off. So all we see is kind of the outside swirling air. We, don't, we hear it, the sound design. And wasn't there one part where it's like, it, like, literally growls like a monster? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure it's obviously the same uh... – uh, guys who did a lot of the the sound effect work for Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park, yeah. But yeah, they they even added uh, like the sounds of pig squealing. Oh yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. I hope the reboot's all from the perspective of the cow. <laughs> it's just like they put a GoPro on a cow, and it's just two hours of soaring around. <laughs> just why you see the Wicked Witch of the West, uh, just. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I just revisited that again for the first time in forever in 4K. As I got this wow. I got this awesome new iMac that can do 4K and um my projector does 1080p, but uh I'll eventually get a 1080p pro- or I'll get a 4K projector that can get up if we can get up to 180 inches, but right now I don't think we can yet. We'll get there. But uh the tornado in Wizard of Oz looks so good. And I, yeah. I didn't realize that I think that that cow is definitely a reference to Wizard of Oz. Obviously, there's Dorothy, which is the name of the, the thing that they're trying to get inside the tornado to capture the data. But there's literally a shot of a cow flying around. I mean, the house is flying around. She's going to Oz for the first time in Wizard of Oz. Um, anyway, we're getting a little off topic here. but uh, That's okay. <laughs> but it's a, No, we're not. We're talking about cinema. 
We're right. <laughs> we're not getting off topic. It's fine. Um, Stay with us, folks. It's going to get good. Yeah. I swear we'll talk about JP after Twister, after four hours of Twister, <laughs> which is an amazing movie. But, yeah, no, the collaboration with uh, Crichton and, yeah, that lesson. And um, we're really just getting to see some of the best of the best. I finally just saw The Andromeda Strain, the 1971. Mm. Great movie. I read the book. I think that was the first Crichton novel I read in, like, middle school. Uh, Sphere. But of all of all his novels turned films, um, this is the mother load for sure. It's just handled with the most care and visual care and and like you said they're just you're still like man it's real this is a documentary about dinosaurs <laughs> you know it's not but it is because he puts you there and he emotionally puts you there so powerfully and uh what a let's talk about stan winston for a second because r.i.p another another great that we lost unfortunately i think he he passed away at 62 years old so um, mm. far too young, but his contributions are, are legendary and long lasting. And, you know, if you talk about alien or predator, or, you know, he was even helped in the thing. Uh, but yeah, the, the animatronic stuff. And, uh, when he passed away, Spielberg said at his funeral that, um, or he spoke, I can't remember if it was funeral or not, but I remember the blurb, uh, Spielberg literally said, he's like, he made our dreams come to life. And Stan Winston still has Stan Winston Studios. I remember when I worked on the new Terminator movie in 2008 that the boxes were coming from L.A. and they said Stan Winston Studios on them, all the endoskeletons of the Terminators. And I just was like, man, I'm part of something here. This is so cool. But, yeah, like you said, the, the I remember there was an interview in your DVD of the making of JP where I remember watching this with you where Spielberg's like, oh, yeah, do you think we can maybe have its eyes dilate or something in the flashlight? And then Stan's just like... Yeah, yeah, I think we can, we can figure something out, yeah. And he was just sitting there <laughs> nodding and, like, he's like, okay, it wants that, it wants that, it wants that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently Stan Winston wanted to be an actor. And he, I didn't know that. And he couldn't get cast as an actor, and so he just started messing with special effects, and he's like, I'm really good at this stuff. Um, kind of like Tom Savini. Tom Savini was kind of, like, doing other stuff, too, but he was like, I'm really just a really handy guy. And he's like, oh, you want that to happen? Oh, let's uh, you know, take this apart, and uh, and he could just go with his hands, very mechanically engineered, very mechanically oriented, um, and we get some of these these puppets that again, so much now, and I think we're starting to see more of a blend like the old days, but they didn't have the computer stuff to do all the stuff yet, so they had to do it, the piece with the eye, the piece with the mouse, the piece with the nostrils, like knowing how to break it up into its emotional components, and not necessarily just raw showcase sure there's some really sweeping moments where welcome to jurassic park and we see the wide at the lake mm-hmm. with all the dinosaurs like that's obviously that's it hits you in the gut but less is more knowing what to focus on and to kind of break it up like you said it's this big puzzle of all these pieces and knowing how to do it in a way that is more visceral and i think the blending of cg and puppet work in this movie whereas 20 years later 25 years later we're seeing sequels and it's all computer, and it just doesn't look as good. It's like, guys, yep. learn from your predecessors, you know? Um, yeah, it's it's like you said. It's it's the elements that make something seem alive, something that you can relate to. If even you were just petting, you know, your dog at home, you would know it's alive because it's breathing. You know, there's saliva. Their, their eyes are dilating naturally. They sneeze, you know? It's... It's the little things like that that make you feel like you're actually watching a real dinosaur. 
Yeah. No, and I love that what you As said about the sound to too. A pet. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The commitment. And like you were saying, you noticed at ten years old the hole in the back. The commitment, like oh, the, the, he got through here like this. Everything's set up. Everything's set up and payoff. Nothing is just. Oh well, that's just the dinosaur thing that you know. There's there's a language to it that they commit to, and there's a through line. And um, I remember that same making of documentary, which I'm sure you can find on YouTube now, making of JP. But um, I remember watching Keyword it with you. James Earl Jones. Yeah, yeah. I actually want to hear you talk about the making of for a second. Um, because you're, I think, more familiar with it than I am, even though I'm pretty sure we watched it, like I said, two or three times together. Because it wasn't just enough to watch Jurassic Park. We had to watch the whole making of, too, because, you know, right. we're filmmakers. Plus, we love it. But uh, I remember the scene where they're making the, uh, where they're recording, I want to say, the, the Tyrannosaurus noises. And you were the first person to tell me the story about the, uh, the cup, the cup of water on the impact tremor. Oh. And yeah. uh, I'd, love to hear, I'd love to hear it from you again if, if you be so kind sure sure (laughs) um i guess to start like this this making of documentary um is one of my favorites because when i was growing up learning um about camera tricks and illusions i couldn't get enough of making of videos e entertainment channel was one of my favorite places to go because they always played these making of of things but back then and even especially today a lot of making of uh, we, we call them um, EPK, stands for Electronic Press Kit, uh, essentially behind-the-scenes stuff. They're all very self-serving. It's, it's always the, the best sound clips of the actors sitting in director's chairs with the whole crew behind them saying, this movie is going to blow your mind. And then they cut to a scene from the movie of like an explosion and stuff like that. It, it's more promotion than anything else. Yeah. And, the Jurassic Park documentary was exactly that. It it held no punches. Um, it talked about all the problems. It talked about um, all the other details that you, you wouldn't even think about. Like, James Earl Jones even said that, for one reason or another, Jurassic Park wrapped two weeks earlier than they were supposed to. Oh, yeah, I remember that. That does not happen yeah. in film production. Especially that was something at, with this many all. moving pieces and this many, like... Yeah, it's just problems. So yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it's definitely definitely worth a look. Um, and and getting to it, one of the one of the stories they talked about is how to get the rippling water effect in in the car. Yeah. Something that most people definitely take for granted. You think it's probably the easiest thing in the world because, I mean, I'm sitting next to a cup right now, and if I just you know hit the table, you get the same exact thing. But that that wasn't the case in this movie because you had a camera rig inside this car. You had um, rain. You had actors to fit. You had all these other things, and you needed these perfect uh, percussion-type circles to happen in this cup. And I'm not sure of his exact position in the documentary. Probably special effects coordinator or um, one of one of the techs or something like that. They had no idea how to do it. They had no. They tried so many different ways of getting these perfect symmetrical circles, and they came up with ways, but it wouldn't quite fit with the the dance. It it it, it wouldn't work with where the camera needed to be, and and all these other things. So it was the night before they shot, and this guy is sitting at home, completely lost, and he's playing his guitar, and 
out of pure chance, he happened to put this this cup of whatever he was drinking, might have even been water, who knows, um, and he just strummed one string on the guitar, and it was the perfect ripples. And he said to himself, I can do this. So sure enough, the next day, he brought in some string, probably some high-tension wire. Uh, he wrapped it under the, the bottom of the car or in a specific place of the car, and at the right time, he just plucked the string and it made the perfect circles mm. um something that something that simple yeah you know as opposed to like having someone just jump, jump. up and down off camera or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah you have the whole crew jump at once oh key grip come over here and jump up and down uh, in front of this uh, shot here yeah do we have a jackhammer anywhere no i i love i love the simple answers when they come and yeah like you've got obviously this is a big deal movie. This is a big, big budget movie. Um, I actually thought it was bigger. I looked up the budget. It was only sixty-three million, according to this. Uh, yeah. Uh, granted, this was nineteen ninety-two when they were filming it. Yeah. Um, but to put this into perspective, Terminator Two, which is a which is a masterpiece, and we've already done on the show, and uh, it you can tell it has a lot of money. It's a hundred million. So I actually thought JP would be around the same, um, but it didn't break a hundred million. Uh, Maybe that was because of there are a lot of factors besides just production and effects and yeah. stuff. Uh, well, their biggest actor was probably Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, yeah. At the time, I really liked the the casting choices of. I mean, now I mean they're all famous because of this movie. Yeah, but I mean you had uh, you had Newman from Seinfeld. Uh, I, I I didn't know who Attenborough yeah. was. I mean he's actually. Contributions to cinema are, are wide and, and, and huge, but mostly directing. So more behind the camera. He has acted. But, uh, yeah, he didn't really recognize a lot of people. And I think that that's I, – I like when – because when you have an actor that is recognized or known, it has a certain amount of emotional attachment to it. So I think mm-hmm. kind of by going in not with having, like, some giant, you know, Jack Nicholson or something or whatever, I think for me – it's kind of hard to separate because they're all so famous to me now because I've seen the movie a million times. But, you know, I remember going into this movie and not really recognizing anybody. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, they didn't have giant... It made them real. Yeah, it made them real. Right. And uh, there's a naturalness to the movie uh, that I think if you're going to make a movie about dinosaurs, you can't have the cast be too over the top, too larger than life. You need to kind of keep it, keep it real grounded like we were saying, you know. Mm-hmm. So that you can identify with the characters as you go through this crazy ride that is over the top, starring, starring Jim Carrey as Dr. Alan Grant. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh man, which would probably be a great film. Um, but actually, he wasn't even hadn't really. He was just starting to explode too. The same year, ninety three, right? It was that Ace Ventura, same time. Yeah. I mean, you were going into a video store and renting Ace Ventura and Jurassic Park around the same time. They were like new releases. That's cool. What a good year. Good years. What a good year. Yeah. Let's talk about casting for a second. I, w- I really want to give shout outs to everybody because it's just, we already mentioned Bob Peck who played Robert Muldoon. Um, Sam Neill, who I, you know, he's one of my favorite actors now. He will always be Alan Grant to me, but uh, he actually collaborated with speaking of John Carpenter uh, the following year on in the mouth of madness, which is a lot of fun. He jumped into kind of more straight horror. Um, I've seen him a bunch in a lot of things, and I always love seeing Sam Neill. He's such a great, terrific character. And it's funny now. Only now can I start to see, start to hear some of his uh, Australian accent like slip out in certain parts of uh, Jurassic Park. But yep. definitely, 
didn't notice it for the first, you know, 50 or 60 goes. Laura Dern, who's fantastic, as Ellie. I actually got to see her at the uh, – Rich King invited me to the AFI, American Film Institute graduation, and they were honoring Mel Brooks and David Lynch. This was 2012 or so. And actually, Carl Reiner came because he's best buzz with Mel Gibson uh, – Mel Gibson, Mel Brooks. And Laura Dern was there because uh, she's best buzz with um, David Lynch, and they've obviously worked together a lot. So I got to kind of see her live. But uh, she is wonderful as Ellie – she does such a good job as kind of being the kind mother, but she's also really the one that wakes up to it, I think, the first of, like, obviously, besides Malcolm, who's like, this is all going to go to hell right away, but mm-hmm. Laura Dern really and, is that source of, like, reason and groundedness and mother. And truly ahead of her time as a uh, 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 feminist attitudes and yeah. this woman that can that can just go out into a, a dino-infested park with nothing but a radio and someone who has a shotgun um, yeah, with confidence, you know, and yes, I'm, I'm watching actually the scene right now with her um, running away from the Velociraptor. Yes. It's sometimes she does play the uh, heroine in trouble, but at the same time, that's how anybody would react in this situation. It, it just, yeah, just because she's a woman doesn't mean that, that her, her reactions were invalid, but, but yes, the lines like, you know, um, Dr. Hammond, trying to say oh i should i should be going because it's i'm a i'm a and, and you're a you're a you're a and not only do, is that perfect for her character showing strength and blah 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 but it's also great for for hammond's character because he he shows a little bit of weakness he says i should be going but i don't want to um, yeah he has that antiquated kind of like lens at it and he's learning that he's learning from his kind of dated yeah. dated perspective i'm just know? a bureaucrat you're you're the scientist yeah Right. But he's meddling with things that are, you know, I think the intentions were honest and good, but I know that's a lot of the message of the film, but yeah, yeah. And Laura, Laura Durham was only 20, gosh, 27 when they made this movie, 26, something like oh, that. Oh, man. He's so young. Jeez. What a, what about us? Yeah, she's so good in this movie. Um, yeah, she's, she's wonderful. And I, I'm a huge fan of hers. And uh, it was really cool to see her live. Yeah, I mean, obviously the contributions of uh, with David Lynch are, are massive, but well and beyond that, it was good to see her in one of the new Star Wars movies, albeit quickly, too quickly, but good to see her in there. I'm glad she got, um, hopefully that she got a huge check. <laughs> uh, I would assume so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I actually saw this HBO show with her called um, Enlightened. They only did just hmm. a couple seasons of the show, Enlightened, but she plays this kind of uh, anything but. So it's kind of this comedy, this dramatic comedy, but... She's such a complicated character where she gets fired and she has a fall from grace and she's kind of slipping into insanity. But she does it with such a way that it kind of sticks it to the man. Um, but it's it's kind of sad but also hilarious. Anyway, she's she's a great actress. Uh, but she'll always be Ellie Sattler to me. Always Ellie Sattler. <laughs> and now we have Jeff Goldblum as Malcolm. And man, wow. What an iconic performance from him and yeah offering the kind of perspective of like the people outside of the the box kind of you know he's he's just there to kind of endorse if it's his, what is it chaotic titian which i've never heard before or chaos chaotician yeah yeah like a study of chaos in systems uh is that something that that sounds like something that uh, michael Crichton would have just invented because he's such a genius right? but uh, right but when was the last time we saw a leather-clad, brilliant 
rock and roll scientist yeah. in any movie. <laughs> I mean, before or after. Before or after Jurassic Park. It is, it is just definitely one of a kind, not just character, but performance as well. So iconic. And you're right. So rare. Yeah, I mean, even it doesn't Hammond even say one line. It's like I brought the something, and then you brought the rock stars. I'm butchering the line, darn. Uh, he actually calls him a rock star. I brought the scientist. You bring the rock star. You bring the rock star. Yeah, yeah. And I love that he, uh, he and Hammond don't get along, and it's this real kind of odd couple. Um, mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, I have to, I have to bring these guys in to satisfy X or Y, so I can clear the park, you know. And that's obviously that's the whole idea is to clear the park get the best of the best we get the lawyer uh but at the end of the day the lawyer is the only one who went for it and um and he didn't last so he was a victim yeah uh but yeah jeff goldblum and i, I remember spielberg talking about goldblum i think that same making of the one you're referring to i want to say that was the same making of he was like yeah, he has this kind of naturalness to it. Like everything he says is is like he literally just made it up on the spot, and right. And he wanted to bring that element of the organic, even though there's like moments where he's like, <laughs> and he has like this larger than lifeness to him. Uh, you know, and he's got the one-liners, he's got the quips, you know. But yeah, there's this kind of spontaneity and organicness to Jeff Goldblum, kind of like. Yeah. It's almost as like as if he's the physical embodiment of jazz or something like that. And I want to say he is a musician. Right. I think he has a band. He is. Doesn't he play in L.A. Yeah. like every now and then? <laughs> Back when uh, he, he does. Legal. Yeah. Yeah. We got to go yeah. sometime. Like, and and anybody can say life finds a way, and yet he says life uh, finds a way. You know, yeah. just just those those little pauses, those little right uh, mind breaks, uh, really add just. Naturalism. That rawness, yeah, 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 but also exemplifies his character and the way he delivers his lines is just as uh, raw and natural and chaotic as the uh, the science he uh, embodies. Wow, wow, Rick, that's that's some uh, that's some English class grit right there. Speaking sir. of English, Sir Richard Attenborough. Oh yeah, Richard Attenborough no with us. Um, he, there was actually a very good chance he would not have worked on Jurassic Park if Spielberg had his way originally. Oh, really? Um, well, the, the story goes that Spielberg really wanted Richard Attenborough to play, um, a character in, in a movie he did right before Jurassic Park, uh, called Hook. He wanted Richard Attenborough to play the title of, uh, Toodles. Um, the uh, the adults, gray-haired, um, I've lost my marbles. Mm-hmm. Um, and Spielberg uh, approached Sir Richard, Sir Richard Attenborough and said, hey, I really want you for this role. And, and Attenborough said, I'd love to, really, but I, I'm, I am completely booked right now. I've got my entire life devoted to this movie I'm making called Chaplin with mm. Robert Downey Jr., um, both great movies. And yeah. Spielberg even movie. even suggested uh, delaying the production of of Hook to be able to get Richard Attenborough, and he's only in like probably three scenes or something like that. Yeah. And Richard Attenborough straight up said, "Look, my I devoted myself completely. I can't. I can't." Um, if that had happened, there was probably a very good chance that Spielberg would have said, "Well, I can't have Attenborough in Jurassic Park. You know, two movies in a row. That would be kind of just you know." 
like casting Leonardo DiCaprio in all of the Scorsese movies, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's life finds a way. It worked out for the best, both with Hook and with Jurassic Park. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, you can't really see anybody else replaced now. Like, what that would have... I mean, yeah, his embodiment of uh, of Hammond is, is so good. And again, kind of taking more or less the villain, you know, because he's the one meddling, right? He's the one, mm-hmm. like... He's the Prometheus stealing fire from the gods. But he does it in such a lovable way. And he does it in such a wonder way where, it, again, like Spielberg bringing out the child in us all i mean you really feel like that sense of and even in even in throwaway lines like yahoo when they're coming down on the helicopter you know and uh just that sense of adventure and that sense of wonder and that sense of that little boy who still wants to grow up and and do great things yeah but he just got a little lost along the way and you know maybe had too many yes men around him and lost perspective but again not doing it He's certainly not Tywin Lannister, you know. He's he's this much different breed of. I wouldn't even. I don't even know if I want to call him the the antagonist, because I think that's would be muddling it a bit. He definitely mm-hmm. he definitely gets the ball rolling. Um. And he represents kind of like you said, he's the bureaucrat that that got things moving, and he brought he brought the best of the best of the best in and gave him the means and the resources to cross that line to work that magic. But you really feel his—you really feel his pain when he says it's over at the end. It's over, and they drive away. Yeah. Um, and you really until just until the sequel. Wink. Yeah, until the sequel, where he's like, oh, I, I, "I'm going to get it right now. We're going to make—we're going to bring the T-Rex to you instead of the other way around." <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're right. That'll work great. Um, yeah. So I, I love that they didn't kill him. Uh, and that he's reunited with his family, but still has that arc. And I just feel like he does such a good job. And he's hilarious. A schedule. <laughs> uh, it's right up your alley. And although he left us in... He was 90. He would have been 91 wow. if he lived five more days. Oh, um, man, really? Yeah, yeah, he died in 2014, but... Uh, yeah, his legacy is insane, and yeah, what a great director as well. And uh, yeah, Miracle on 34th Street, I remember watching that around the same time. Um, Gandhi, what a great movie, he produced and directed that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's in The Great Escape, which is a great movie. But mm-hmm. yeah, again, always be Hammond. And he lives on in his brother, John, who does the, uh, does the voiceovers for, was it Planet Earth? Yeah, pretty much every great nature documentary. Yeah, and they they sound the same. <laughs> yep, yep. So it's like the Attenborough boys still doing it, still killing it. But yeah, as we said, Bob Peck, who plays Muldoon, R.I.P., did not even realize he passed away. Um, yeah. But uh, what a, yeah, what a great addition. Martin Ferrero as Gennaro. I think this was Gennaro. <laughs> I think this was too. Yeah, B.D. Wong as Wu, who camp, he comes back in uh, Jurassic, Park, uh, Jurassic World. So I like to think he got a pretty nice payday there. Joseph Mazzello mm-hmm. as Tim. Adriana Richards as Lex. Amazing, amazing, amazing. I don't think I've ever seen them in anything else, but they're so good in this movie. 
to find kid actors that can really handle this is you take it for granted when you watch the movie but and when you were a kid I didn't think about it but I mean they really brought their game they were so good yep having that sense of family bringing that sense of family and camaraderie to to Grant they really brought their game uh, they, they work so well with Sam Neill uh, they're great obviously Sam Samuel L. Jackson as Arnold oh Mr. Arnold <laughs> that part makes me laugh it's so insensitive with the, with the arm the severed arm Arnold's arm um, yeah he was on oh man he was on fire was those two years like Pulp Fiction the next year oh my gosh what a career he's still going strong oh yeah uh, oh yeah yeah you know Nick Fury still in some of the biggest movies coming out uh, Wayne Knight also known as Newman <laughs> as an Edry. Uh is so great in this movie. So so great in this movie. And uh you know, he's definitely more of a slime ball, but he plays the part so well. I still say when yeah. he's lying to them about going to the vending machines that it's the worst it's the best worst acting as someone who's trying to lie and not <laughs> and he's like, Yeah, no, he's he's like, machines and you know, you know. <laughs> he's like sweating and yeah. Yeah, it, there's like one part where his eyes like bulge out. It's like so it's like they really should have known that he was lying at that point. Yeah, it's good to go to the vending machines. I don't want anything. You know, I'll get some of the vending machines. You know, I'll go to the vending machines. You guys want anything? You know, I thought, I thought I'd go. <laughs> it's like, what are you hiding, sir? Um, but wow, what a great role in the book. In the book, Nedry really you get more. I mean, obviously, just by having more time with the backstory and stuff. But Nedry really feels like he's been screwed over by the company, and they basically keep taking advantage of his brilliance and. He's just never gotten yeah. his payday, and it's just their base. They really are. You really feel his pain more in the book. Yeah, a relatable bad guy. It's always yeah, always the uh, the best of of antagonists. Yes, totally. So yeah, he. But anyway, he's great as uh, uh even the scene with uh, where he meets uh, <laughs> oh god, what's his name, Dobson, Dodson, Dodson, Dodson. We got Dodson. We got Dodson here. here. See, nobody cares. Wonderful. And I remember I was definitely into Seinfeld already. We were watching it as a family on Thursdays. So, yeah, I mean, again, he's not the first five players on the cast list, but I like the IMDb quote, there are no small parts. No small parts. Uh, it's actually a whole, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but they do these little, um, do little quick documentaries with actors that are supporting roles but how they brought so mm. much to the table and the choices and everything. And, uh, yeah, I mean, what a, what a, what a cast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, wow. And yeah, a lot of them were, like you said, they weren't, they weren't big actors, but they brought that real, that realness to the, to the story. And now obviously, you know, Sam Neill will always be Alan Grant. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So cool. Um, well, we have to, I don't know, we've talked about him a little, but we have to include the contributions of Mr. John Williams. Oh. And the bro, uh. the bromance and collaboration of 40 plus years now between Spielberg and Williams is just incredible. And honestly, I wrote this earlier when I was putting my notes together, um, about John Williams, but his scores capture the magic and awe that Spielberg captures with the picture. 
but they're inseparable. Yeah, yeah, it is practically fifty-fifty. Yeah, if if even like if Spielberg even said once that you know the score is literally the soul of the movie. Um, I love that. Actors actors can add so much, but the the music not only enhances the performance, but enhances um, everything else. It enhances the scenery. It enhances the the cinematography, the lighting, um, the the. It really does the movie, the yeah. the story. <laughs> yeah, no man, his scores are just brilliant. I will be piping in some right now. My future self, as the editor of this podcast, will be playing something right now. I'm sure I haven't decided what yet. So, but I mean, again, to go back to that kind of awe and wonder, and not just making it like this horror piece. There's definitely there's definitely thriller horror elements in the movie. And they're beautifully done, and they're riveting, and they're powerful. But just that... It's that wonder. It's that awe. And yeah. that combined yeah. with and the beautiful... Epic. epic, epic, sweeping, powerful stuff. Yeah. Uh, these creatures are from another world, but they're from this world, from another time. And we're bringing them to life. And the music is just so powerful the adventure man so the collaboration between williams and spielberg it's like you can't even take the two of these guys together you couldn't separate them now and i wouldn't want Mm -hmm. we wouldn't want to um i just saw this cool documentary i think i sent it to you but um it's basically about their bromance over the last 45 years 47 years yes yes i haven't watched it yet but that is definitely in my in my wheelhouse oh it's so cool spielberg like literally goes and watches williams compose and he'll like just sit and then he'll go to, like, all of his opening things. And he's like, oh, I, I, nothing gets me more excited than, than knowing that the, the new John Williams CD is about to come out or whatever. And uh, mm-hmm. I got to say, my first CD that I ever bought in 1994 was Jurassic Park, the score. And my second was Green Day Dookie. Yeah, right. And that pretty much Honestly, sums me up I, as a person. I think those two albums. <laughs> I, think, I think me too. That that I that I actually uh, went out intentionally, intending to purchase. Yeah, the first CD was Jurassic Park. I mean, I had received gifts, mm-hmm. um, like you know, Ace of Base and stuff like that. Um, uh-huh. uh, but but the the one the one soundtrack that I was like, you know what, I have to spend my own money on this, and I need it now. <laughs> was was Jurassic Park? Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's John, so John Williams is like, he's he's pretty much the only composer, or at least maybe one of only two or three composers where the word theme seems irrelevant, because usually you think of of a theme being this one piece of music that is like the heartbeat or the embodiment of a film, and yet. In most of John Williams's movies, I can think of all of these iconic songs that are essentially different themes throughout. Mm-hmm. Like Jurassic Park has the one you just sang, but it also has two completely different things, which I essentially are are two different themes. Like even look at gosh, like Home Alone. Oh. Like every every piece of music in Home Alone is essentially its own heartbeat, and it's 
there is yes you have the da, 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 the main hook but you've yeah. got yeah but but, but you've got so much more, you've yeah. got oh man every, every every moment is its own uh just theme yeah it, but that again that doesn't really quite define it no he's he's a living legend and uh you've got to see him live at the Hollywood Bowl right i remember you yes. saying you, i wish i'd went with you yeah. I hope we get to have it, another shot because I have not yeah, seen him live. I, I think so. They definitely canceled it for this year, but yeah. I mean, John Williams is what ninety, if not close to it at this point. Um, <sighs> yeah, he's and, upper 80s uh, for sure. And uh, but he's he's still doing it every year. Uh, he doesn't he doesn't do the whole show. It usually starts off with uh, David Newman composing. John Williams scores, and David Newman is also an, an incredible uh, composer. A legend. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, he did, I think he did Bill and Ted's, uh, Bowfinger, uh, Little Giants, stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Um, but then this, the second half is is all John Williams, and and from what I hear, like, every show is different. Um, mm-hmm. The one I saw, the MC for the first time ever, and I... I I got struck by lightning. I got so lucky with this. Was Spielberg? Um, Spielberg emceed it, and oh, what? It was just yeah. That's awesome. Yep, That's I had no idea who was going to be there, and then all of a sudden he comes out on stage, oh and I, I faint, and then and then I came to, and he was gone. So no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but but no, it, but it was it was such a night of, and if anybody is, is listening is is in L.A. Um, or has access to L.A. Um, around the time of Labor Day, because this is usually when he he does these three shows over the course of a Friday, Saturday, Sunday weekend. Um, it's 100% worth it because it is it is a night of appreciation for not just what John Williams has done for us, but just the idea of film composing in general. They uh, they played the first I want to say five ten minutes of Indiana Jones and the Lost Crusade without music just just the dialogue just the sound effects Mm. um and then they replayed it as john williams you know composed along with the score and it is of course night for day fundamentally different yeah 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 the power yeah even even yeah yeah i i would even say what they first showed us without the music was unusable (laughs) yeah you're like this movie (laughs) sucks there was just there was nothing to it. There, yeah. It was, uh, and yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, soulless. No, I like that you called it the soul. Yeah, it really. Uh, yeah, it's it's crazy how it actually affects how you see it, even though it's yeah. pure audio. But it just it, your interpretation of it. We we are we are creatures that are of of our senses, you know, and our senses aren't so clear cut. Um. There's only one movie that I was able to watch with the sound off, and it was still good. Was uh, Office Space, and nice. The, the facial expressions on everyone are so funny. That, I mean, obviously, I'm going into it knowing it almost by heart at this point. But yeah, I wouldn't want to make a make a habit of that with any movie. But um, yeah, it's uh, uh, it's great. It's great, man. John Williams. Yeah, I got to see him live. I finally only went to the Hollywood Bowl once. It was uh, it'll be almost. In Halloween, it'll be two years. Saw uh, Danny Elfman for the 25th anniversary of Nightmare Before Christmas, and 
the Hollywood Bowl sounds so wonderful. I can't I can't wait to get there yeah. to see John Williams. And the next opportunity, I'm I'm literally gonna get my tickets. Uh, we get let's get let's definitely go. Let's make a point. I'm in. Yeah, he is 88 years old. Oh, John Williams, boy. 88. So yeah, man. Yeah, I mean, can't take it for granted that he'll be with us forever. Um, obviously, his contributions are <laughs> infinite and represent almost multiple lifetimes of contributions <laughs> it's like ridiculous i remember in 2001 i got uh the best of john williams it was a double cd for christmas and uh, i was just like man it's almost like with the beatles you're like that's him too that's them too like what twist and shouts the beatles right <laughs> it's just like oh my god how many like iconic legendary pieces of music can you compose in one lifetime well, if you're john williams the answer is a billion so yeah um another realization uh that i keep you know it's funny you know editors are are extremely important film editors and that's really where the movie comes together as you know uh you're you're an editor as well and you know it's not just you you you're you're mostly cinematographer most of the time well i wouldn't even say that you're you're a renaissance man you do it all yeah (laughs) ellie's kind of interesting in that they they like to um they, they they like to just define you um, because that's that's how people can realize, you know, how they might be able to utilize you for upcoming projects and so on and so yes. forth. So, so, yes, the way I like to say it is my business card says cinematographer, but in the end, I'm exactly like you, Andy. I'm, I'm a filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, all, all of the strengths of every position in filmmaking um, are compounded by by what you know. Um, mm. I, I could not be a DP without knowing editing and, and vice versa. Yes. So, and, and you can, you can make that comparison to any other position, um, on a film set. That's so great, Rick. I love that. I know it's like, yeah, it's like, I don't want to put people in a box or, or whatever. I love that we're filmmakers. Um, but, uh, it was, it was Michael Kahn, who's the editor of Jurassic Park. I keep seeing his name. I keep seeing this guy's name. And of course, I'm a big Star Trek fan, so I keep saying Michael. Gah! Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just keep seeing his name. He edited JP. He is. Um, I got him up here on IMDb. He's also. Yeah, he did Twister too. I he think, did. Right? Oh my god, did he? He did. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he's done a lot with Spielberg. He did The Goonies, Color Purple, Fatal Attraction, Empire oh of goodness. the Sun, Indiana, all three Indiana Jones. 1941, Used Cars, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, uh, Always, Arachnophobia, Toy Soldiers, Hook, Alive, Jurassic Park, and Schindler's List, which both came out in 93. So both Michael yep. Kahn and Steven Spielberg were, I don't even know how the, how do you put out Jurassic Park and Schindler's List in the same freaking year? How, how do you even Crazy. wrap your mind around those two different projects? I know. One being so dramatic and immensely personal, and then one, uh, I, I can't, I can't. <laughs> yeah, well, the answer is, you get good people around you, like Michael Kahn, who are, he's, I mean, this guy's still cutting stuff. Casper, Twister, Lost World, Amistad, Saving Private Ryan, The Haunting remake, Reindeer Games, Artificial Intelligence, Minority Report, Catch Me If You Can, Tomb Raider, Cradle of Life, Peter Pan 03, The Terminal, World of the Worlds, 05. Munich, 06. 05, sorry. Also two crazy movies that came out. 
05. Uh, yeah, anyway, this guy, is, it goes on for days. Uh, and still active. He is cutting the new West Side Story. He cut Ready Player One. He cut The Post. This guy's 85 years old. He's in his 80s, still cutting big-ass movies. Uh, kidnapping of Edgardo Mortaro, which I haven't heard of. But then, Untitled <laughs> Indiana Jones Project 2022. Oh, boy. Yeah, anyway, not, that's, not to get into that. that. Whole that's other. the wonderful team, or wonderful thing about this. The team that, that made movies like this is... You can even make the same comparison to someone like Clint Eastwood. Mm. How they are just so old, yet they are still machines because they are they're doing what they love. Yeah. And yes, yes, personal things can come in the way that that would make someone want to retire. Uh, Rick Moranis is a good example, yeah. so on and so forth. Um, and those are hard decisions, and definitely the right decisions were made. But. Um, in the end, people like Michael Kahn, Spielberg, they're still doing it because it's it's not a job for them. Yeah. It's not a paycheck. It's, it's well, the same things that, you know, got us into filmmaking in the first place. Yeah, they say if you want to go make money, uh, go be a lawyer or something, you know. Right. <laughs> uh, obviously, there is opportunity to make money. And money money's one of those things where it's... Uh, you know, like you can kind of weigh how much you're resonating by how many people are watching it and box office and numbers like that. But you're right. I, it's it's got to be fueled. I always say I'm, a, I'm always interviewing brave writers on the showbiz storm because it you got to love it slash need it like we do because it can. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it can be a real a real doozy tumultuous. I mean, as the world has gotten more tumultuous in 2020 for everybody across the world, I mean, filmmaking at its at its best, it was still like. Movies wouldn't necessarily even see the light of day. They still, there's are, you know, instances where they don't or that something happens. And, you know, it's such a kind of tumultuous world. So, yeah, it's, it's good to see people that do it and love it and just do it all the time. And just, yeah, because that's what they do. This is what I do. This is who I am, right? You know, it's in our DNA. So, but yeah, Michael Kahn. Thank you. <laughs> Born December 8th, 1935. Wow. Gee. Thank you, Michael Kahn. You are a legend, and I am so grateful that you are still in the game, sir. That's so cool. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, Jurassic Park definitely embodies, obviously, any any film, right, is, is just a collaborative venture that you know all these and you, I, like, I like that you called it a puzzle that so many things have to kind of click together and so many people are basically having a baby together right you're all kind of having this baby and you're all trying to do your part to be the, the good parent for this baby to do mm-hmm. what you can to support it And but at some point you, you let it go and it either finds its legs or or it doesn't but at some point you know yeah. it's out of your hands and you've done what you have to do but you want to try yeah. to give it the best fighting chance that you can you know yeah, because uh, as as in the end, as much of a a stamp that Spielberg put on a movie like Jurassic Park, it also has John Williams' stamp. It also has yeah. Michael Kahn's and Dean Cundey's and just yeah. ah, such great people. Stan Winston. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, all the actors, uh, everyone's doing their part. But um, we have Kathleen Kennedy, Gerald Mullen. Uh, David Culp co-wrote it with Michael Crichton. David Culp's still active. He's been working with Spielberg for a while. 
He's also mm -hmm. uh, directed he directed a Star of Echoes, one of my favorite thriller horrors. Um, he just came back to direct a movie with uh, Kevin Bacon called You Should Have Left, which I actually thought was pretty darn creepy and pretty darn good. It was mm. really uh, really taut. It's crazy to think of Jurassic Park as a almost 30-year-old movie now, isn't it, Rick? It's crazy. I mean, it, it could come out tomorrow and it'd still be yeah. revolutionary. As revolutionary for me as I'm sure it could be for kids my age yeah for sure or no sorry kids that were my that were age, your age when yeah. i saw jurassic park yeah <laughs> yeah no i i got you brother yeah it went on to uh turn a 63 million dollar budget into one billion worldwide one yep. billion dollars yeah not to mention all a, the uh, a movie that that's that old and could still be number one at the box office during a global pandemic oh man rick this has been wonderful um, is there any, uh, is there anything you want to direct the listeners to check out, uh, that you've been up to? I, I will, I will definitely put your IMDb. I'll put links in the, um, description of the episode. Is there anything you sure. want people to check out on, uh, online or anything? Uh, you've, you've been involved with so many projects. Sure. This is um, your seventh feature yeah, now. Uh, That's so cool. Yeah, a, a lot of the uh, the movies that I do uh, cinematography wise are with John Graham, who did The Last Unicorn. So a lot of his movies, um, uh, it's kind of an interesting amalgamation of of genres. Uh, we started off doing this movie called Home Sweet Home, which was a uh, home invasion thriller. Um, uh, that should be available. That that is definitely a, more of a darker thriller. Uh, but then we found a lot of opportunity and financing in uh, faith-based family films. Yeah. Um, so if you're in the realm where, where that kind of story would be beneficial to you and your family, there's Catching Faith, there's Catching Faith 2, there's Wish for Christmas. Um, so good. Uh, there's, there's a new movie, hopefully coming out later this year, called Switched, um, which is kind of a high school, I would say teen girl comedy that's also anti-bullying in nature mm -hmm. um, that turned out very, very well. So we're excited for that to get out. Um, so cool. And whenever whenever we finish up this this movie that we're about to leave in a couple days um, for is finished, which will hopefully be in a year, maybe just under, mm -hmm. um, it'll be called The Inheritance. And that is, that is about a family coming to grips um, with the death in the family and getting over their own shortcomings and learning to be a family after so much time apart. Um, so they're, they're movies with really good messages uh, and, and morality uh, for a world that uh, we all think desperately needs a little bit more of. Oh, absolutely. Um, 100%. So, yeah. Desperately. Uh, yeah, no, thank you guys for all your hard work. And, and yeah, I mean, yes, they are faith-based in origin. I, I definitely think that uh, that shouldn't be a line in the sand, however, because I really think they're accessible to, to everybody. And I've, uh, I've mm -hmm. seen them all, except for I haven't seen Catching Faith 2 or Switched, but I, I look forward to seeing those when they uh, are accessible. I know John Graham said you can watch At Your Own Risk on YouTube. Is that right? Hmm. Um, uh, yes, yes, it is on YouTube. We were talking about that movie, which you guys did in like what a week or something crazy. <laughs> it was it was a ten day shoot. Ten days, yeah, wow. ten ten days straight of filming, just four people out in the desert. Yeah, uh, this this was a movie that kind of like Home Sweet Home is is outside of the uh, 
faith-based family. Right. It kind of revolves around uh, two women who kind of get lost in the desert, and then there are mysterious things happening. There are people watching them. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, we find out why later in the film. But, but yeah, that is definitely a genre departure for us. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Um, and, yeah, the, the drone shots and, uh, yeah, your cinematography really puts you in the desert and makes you feel like you're dehydrating and getting oh, lost with them. Please. No, seriously, it's great. Uh, I really don't thank me. Thank Dean Cundy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Dean Cundy is. We call him. We did a, a podcast before the Aniplex called uh, Sons of Carpenter, where we talk about oh. John Carpenter movies, and uh, he, we call Dean Cundy Dean Dean Cundy of Carpenter High, as if all these characters were like part of this like high school or whatever. Yeah. Uh, nice. So yeah, we call him the Dean. He's the man. And I gotta say, I yeah. see echoes of him in in your in your face, even with the beard. And uh, yeah, you guys are uh, honestly, you're my favorite cinematographer ever. But I think Dean Cundey's my uh, my set. Oh, he's he's my teacher. Yeah, no, it's so cool. Uh, he's yeah, he really. I like that you we get we get these kind of making of featurettes. So now you can find them on YouTube. You know, if you're not getting physical media anymore, a lot of time you can find like the making of this, the making of that. I really I, I inspire people to to go and check out the making of all their favorite stuff and get to really see the the artistry behind stuff. And and a lot of the time, what I really like, and you you touched on this earlier, is that not everything's figured out beforehand. I mean, sure, you got to have a plan. Uh, yeah. But the best laid plans of mice and men. But most of the time, you have a plan just so that you can then deviate, but not totally derail. So you give, mm-hmm. give you that room for flexibility. And uh, the brilliant things that came about from, like you said, the simple answer. Like in Halloween, where we become Michael Myers in the beginning. That, that tracking shot, that Steadicam shot. Uh, the, the, what, the Panaglide, they called it, I think is the name of the camera. And, uh, you know, you're getting to see just people just coming up with stuff on the fly. Uh, granted, they have, a, you know, have a well-laid plan and, uh, and having the courage to be able to just, well, we only got 10 days, like, on at your own risk or, we only, you know, or whatever. Like, what can we do within the, the limitations that we have but the creativity therein? And I think it's just so brilliant. Like, on Star Trek, you know, the, the transporter came about because the shuttlecraft wasn't built yet. And they didn't have the money to make a shuttle yet. So they're like, oh, we're going to stand on this pad. We're going to disappear. And then we're going to reappear on the planet every week. And that mm-hmm. became the, 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 the most iconic part of it. Beaming. Yep. You know? Yep. So anyway, uh, good luck on your new show, Rick. I can't, well, thank I can't you. wait to uh, hear how it goes. And um, I know you guys have been waiting for a while. I, I think John said that in the other timeline, you would have already wrapped by now. But... Um, Eh. Maybe it gave you a little more time to visualize some more. Time and just, you know, uh, I'm sure there are, there are hidden benefits here that we're, we're not quite noticing just yet. Um, mm-hmm. um, I know if we had, we had shot uh, back in April, it probably would have been a little bit colder, maybe even a little bit wetter. Um, yeah. By shooting it now, it's certainly going to be a lot hotter and maybe even as wet. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but but also there was there was one moment um, a couple months ago where uh, Georgia got a bit of a, a hurricane that went. Oh, you're right. And you know we if we had been there at the time that this that this big storm came through, we would have had to go on hiatus for a little bit. Yeah, um, like in uh, Apocalypse so, yeah. Now. 
Yeah. Taking you four yeah, years. Yeah, exactly. Or even Jurassic Park. They actually had a tropical storm go through during the film. That's right. That's right. I'm really glad you brought that, that up. Yeah, man. Yeah, and, and John said, you know, if you guys had, you know, fortunately you weren't, like, in the middle of it when the COVID crisis struck. Like, so it gives you options. If you're, like, already halfway and you've already shot half the movie or whatever, would have right. kind of tied your hands a lot more. So, yeah. Yep. So, um, well, anyway, to put a bow on it, I'm glad you guys are going to be able to keep going. And I can't wait to, uh, I'll be stalking you guys on Instagram and Facebook. Um, be ravenously consuming all the behind the scenes stuff that I see. <laughs> ravenously. <laughs> yeah. All right, Mr. Rick Galley. I will be putting links to your IMDb and a few other things on the description of the episode. Check out Rick Galley. Brilliant guy. And, uh, a guy I'm happy to call friend and collaborator because you're the man, Rick. Oh, oh, thank you. But I mean, it wouldn't it wouldn't be a team without the other side, which is you. Thank you, brother man. No, you're right. It really it takes a village. It really does. And uh, that's why reach out, make connections with people that you love, people that you like, and uh, and keep them because they're important. Can't do anything alone. Plus, it's really boring by yourself, you know? (laughs) (laughs) All right, brother man. Well, good luck and uh, happy 4th of July. And uh, thank you so much for sharing um, all your time and energy with me. And this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, dude. I love this. 